My name is Holly Lewis. My name's Lawson Keeney. And my name is Jean Lewis. And welcome to I Don't Know Why We're Doing This, where we stick to the list for better or worse. Today we're doing our deep dive into the film Beauty and the Beast. 1991 is the Disney animated film. And we're also going to look at some of the news of the day, as well as what we've seen within the week. But first, obviously to the news. Lawson, take us away. All right, we're trying something a little bit different this week, where we're, we've picked a few discussion points, and we're moving the rest of the, the news segment to the top of the segment as a rapid-fire bulletin. So let's get started with that. AMC's History of Horror with Eli Roth has been renewed for a season two. And the Jim Jeffries show over on Comedy Central has been cancelled after three seasons. Alexander Daddario is set to headline the plane set thriller Airborne. I'm quoting Deadline here. When the deadly disease spreads throughout the plane, a flight attendant must contain the infected passengers and against unlikely odds, land the aircraft safely. CBS is developing a series adaptation of James Patterson's recent non-fiction book, House of Kennedy, on the Kennedy political dynasty. It's going to be shopped to streaming outlets. Kate McKinnon is set to star in a limited series called Joe Exotic, based on the second season of the Over My Dead Body podcast. I'm quoting Deadline here. In Joe Exotic, when big cat enthusiast Carol Baskin, McKinnon, learns that fellow exotic animal lover Joe Exotic Schreiber Vogel is breeding and using his big cats for profit, she sets out to shut down his venture, inciting a quickly escalating rivalry. But Carol has a checkered past of her own, and when the claws come out, Joe will stop at nothing to expose her hypocrisy. The results prove deadly. Amazon has ordered a new series for 2020 called Narcos vs. Zombies. I'm quoting Deadline. Legendary narco kingpin Alonzo Moroquin escapes from a high-security Mexican prison with his son Lucas and finds refuge hiding at Paradiso, a remote drug rehab facility located on the U.S. side of the border. Meanwhile, test subjects from a failed U.S. military experiment intended to transform wounded soldiers into killing machines are left for dead near the border, only to revive as deadly mutant zombies. A Mexican SWAT team pursuing the Moroccans is infected by the zombie horde, becoming a zombie army in its own right. Alerted to the threat, the US Army embarks on a mission to annihilate them. BCDF Pictures is developing a TV adaptation of the fantasy novel series A Raven's Shadow. I'm quoting Deadline here. It tells the story of Valen Alsorna, who at 10 was left by his father at the Iron Gate of the Sixth Order to be trained and hardened to the austere, celibate and dangerous life of a warrior of the faith. Valen's father was battle lord to King Janus, ruler of the unified realm. Having been abandoned, Valen was deprived of his birthright and his rage swelled. His cherished memories of his mother are soon challenged by what he learns within the order. But one truth overpowers all the rest. Valen Alsorna is destined for a future he has yet to comprehend, one that will alter the world. Richard Stanley's recent Lovecraft adaptation, Colour Out of Space, is set to be the first of a trilogy of Lovecraft adaptations coming from Elijah Wood's production company, Spectavision. Uh, Stanley might return for the others to direct them, we don't know yet, but the next adaptation will be the Dunwich Horror. I'm quoting from Goodreads. 
It's about an unspeakable horror which is unleashed upon the quaint burg of Dunwich, Massachusetts, in the form of a young boy named Wilbur Watley, the son of a disfigured albino woman and a mysterious and possibly demonic father. Wilbur's birth ushers in a series of strange events in the town that only intensify as he grows older. Will the townspeople be able to contain this curse before it's too late? Blumhouse's upcoming Fantasy Island movie adaptation of the classic TV series has been called a horror film for quite some time, but this is the first time we've heard a plot synopsis of about it, and we hear now that it is absolutely a horror film. I'm quoting Deadline here. The enigmatic Mr. Rourke, played by Michael Pena, makes the secret dreams of his lucky guest come true at a luxurious but remote tropical resort. Okay, so that's the plot of the TV show, right there. But when the fantasies turn into nightmares, the guests have to solve the island's mystery in order to escape with their lives. And that is the 2019 interjection of horror. Uh, It's being released in America Valentine's Day. Finally, Adam McKay has revealed what his next movie is going to be. Adam McKay is the director of The Big Short, Anchorman, and Vice. Uh, It's going to be Don't Look Up, a dark satire that he describes as similar to something like Wag the Dog. I'm quoting Adam McKay, who himself was quoted in a Deadline interview. Two mid-level astronomers discover a meteorite will destroy the Earth in six months and must go on a media tour to warn mankind. All right, that's the end of the bulletin. So why don't we move on to our discussion points of this week? The first of which is this. Amazon has given a two-season order to Critical Role, The Legend of Vox Machina, an adult animated series based on the Critical Role D&D podcast starring a litany of famous voice actors. As far as I can tell, this is not going to be a, a direct adaptation of the uh, the podcast in that it will have the actors playing D&D. As far as I can tell, it will be an adaptation of the storyline with all of the extra real-world elements removed. I find this topic really interesting because in a game of D&D, you have everyone playing their characters and you've got a game master, which in this case is the supremely talented Matthew Mercer. So he's going to be playing so many roles in this adaptation. And that can lead to a lot of fantastic comedy. And having listened to a bit of Critical Role, not a lot of it, because I can't really sit down and listen to, you know, a four-hour video just on a whim, I really am excited to see how this goes. And if it ends up working, more D&D games might end up being adapted into this, because I do know that the McElroy brothers have been able to adapt one of their D&D, three of their D&D campaigns into a comic book. So I'm very interested in seeing how this goes. Yeah, um, personally, this sounds like a very, very cool idea because D&D has that sort of freedom in storytelling. Like with podcasts like The Adventure Zone being turned into a comic series... Or any of the others, Heroes and Halfwits, being turned into something more than just a D&D campaign. It's that freedom that is really exciting when it comes down to animating it. 
It's worth pointing out, I think, that this originally started as a kickstarted animated special that they wanted to do. They got so much money from that Kickstarter that they extended it to a full season of TV episodes. And then Amazon was like, right, we'll take that and we'll order a second season as well. So, John, John, would you you've, you seem to be the only one of us who's actually listened to a bit of the podcast. Um, would you, do you call it a comedy thing? Uh, in part, because you do have all of these incredibly funny people, um, you know, taking part in this. You've got Travis Willingham, you've got, I can't remember all of them off the top of my head, but from what I'd heard, it is comedy, and a game like D&D leads you into these really interesting scenarios where you have to think outside the box. So you're not going to be seeing a normal kind of narrative take place because of the random and improvised nature of D&D. With D&D, anything can happen. So it's not going to be a traditional fantasy adventure. It can... Anything can possibly happen. You can have any sort of interaction. And sometimes when something worked the first time, it won't work again. Just by how the dice roll. So it's going to be really interesting to see how it turns out. I'm just looking at a, a list of the cast here, and it's it's a murderous row of famous voice actors. If you're interested in voice acting at all, you probably recognize a lot of these people. Matthew Mercer, Ashley Johnson, Laura Bailey, Liam O'Brien, Marisha Ray, Sam Reigel, Taliesin Jaffe, Travis Willingham, and Orion Acaba. So I know a lot of those names. Ashley Johnson, I believe... Yes, Ashley Johnson is on Blind Spot on NBC at the moment. And it's, of course, e- she's Ellie in The Last of Us. The only person that they're missing is Troy Baker. <laughs> well, he'll probably be in there to voice some sort of ancillary character at some point. Some sort of dragon or bard or something. Anyone can... We, we can hope. We can hope. Troy Baker can do anything. Warner Media has given a special four-episode pilot order to a series called Today's Special, which is a very unique-sounding new show that Warner's considering for one of their networks. They haven't decided which yet, but it will be shot and aired daily. Today's Special is described as, and I'm quoting Deadline here, an ambitious new television format that blends the storytelling mechanics of a daily soap opera, the tone and style of a single-camera sitcom, and the topical responsiveness of late-night television. It takes place in a 24-hour diner, which serves as a hub for a diverse group of characters. The lives of the staff and regulars intertwine in ongoing storylines, while also reacting to trending topics and the day's headlines. Now, I feel as if with this, what I expect to be the case is only a tiny fraction of that, every episode, will be the topical bit. It'll be like the the news on on the TV in the in the diner or something. Like think if you've got a thirty minute show, then maybe like five minutes of that is stuff that has to be written on the day, and then they can just have all of the ongoing character related storylines that they don't necessarily have to write the whole thing in the twenty four hours before it goes to air. And they don't necessarily even have to write it. They could have a general outline of 
you know, the scene and where you want the characters to go and just improvise it. Absolutely. Although, then again, you have to get a good cast for that. Because for improvisation, you need people who can do it and people who aren't just going to get wrapped up in whatever the news is on that day. Because with improvisation, it's about true reactions. You're not... With a script... Yes, you can you can pre-plan what you're going to do. With improvisation, you got to let it take you. You got to do the whole strategy of yes and instead of cutting people off. Setting it in a diner is a good idea because that's that's a very good hub to have all of these characters sort of come in and exit and it's a good way to sort of check in every day and have an excuse to just check in every day at the same place so that they don't have to run around doing different sets and things. It's a good locality for that to to work in. Yeah, and not every character has to show up each each episode. It can it is really the perfect location for it because of everything you said and the fact it's very evocative of Americana, the whole concept of the diner itself. So it's going to be really cool, I think. And you can give the thing a sort of Seinfeld Cheers energy, mm. where it is literally this one single location. There's like the person, the waiters, the cook, who can be sort of gruff and tumble. And you've got people just kind of coming in on their day to day lives. You could very easily have Christmas episodes, Halloween episodes, but you film them a little ahead of time because you don't want to be filming on Christmas and Halloween. Well, Halloween less so, but you don't want to be filming on Christmas. But you can touch on holidays really easily. This also really seems to me like a like an HBO Max kind of thing, more than a CW thing or a TBS or TNT kind of thing. TBS, I could maybe see it, but it's the daily nature of it that sort of throws it in to uh, a different area than than TBS is normally associated with. When you have streaming and you have all these ongoing storylines and you have a new episode every day, that seems like the most ideal place for that because you can go back to the previous episodes at any time as opposed to something like TBS where it'd be like, oh, you missed two days now i mean that's the thing with with soap operas is they tend to be a very loyal audience which is not so much a thing anymore now that we've moved on to streaming and and cable and things like that and you've got to imagine that something like days of our lives or something like that probably wouldn't get it wouldn't work as well if it wasn't that network thing where you had those very loyal people tuning in every day and this mix of it being Single camera sitcom, potentially in front of a live audience. We don't well, know. single camera because it doesn't mention multi cam is live audience because they've got to have multi cameras all over the place. So single camera implies that it's going to be um, not in front of a live audience, right? And sort of having that soap opera tone, it begs the question: Is this going to be more comedy centric? Are we going to be seeing, you know, more? I guess, serious topics discussed? Is this going to be more along the lines of, say, an SNL skit, or is it going to be a proper sort of 
they want to tell a real story with real characters more. Well, just reading over this bit again, it says, The storytelling mechanics of a daily soap opera and the tone and style of a single-camera sitcom. So I suppose... I mean, you can imagine something in, in sort of the area of One Day at a Time or Scrubs, stuff that tackled serious issues, but had a, a wacky and comedic angle, which can be very effective when done well. Anyway, moving on. James Dean has announced his next movie role. <laughs> uh, no, that... Well, well, he hasn't announced it, obviously. They're resurrecting James Dean digitally. He's going to play in quotation marks a soldier in a vietnam war movie which is going to be about the bond between a soldier and a military dog he's not playing the main soldier he's playing a supporting character i'm quoting deadline here named rogan apparently co-director anton erst said we searched high and low for the perfect character to portray the role of rogan which has some extreme complex character arcs and after months of research we decided on James Dean. Bullshit. Oh, hey, Absolute Anton, bullshit. You searched high and low for the perfect character to portray the role of Rogan, and you went to someone who died half a century ago. It is absurd. It is utterly absurd. And, you know, it's... Hey, Anton, are you a necromancer? It is not going to be Dean's voice. It can't be. He didn't do enough stuff back during his lifetime for them to have an audio library enough to accurately recreate his voice. And of course the audio quality would be so much less than all of the actors surrounding this Frankenstein's monster of a James Dean that they're going to whip into creation. So it's going to be a guy doing a James Dean impression who has James Dean's face CGI plastered onto his head. So at the end of the day, it's not going to be James Dean. From the sounds of it, the perfect character to play the the role of Rogan is this guy doing a James Dean impression, not James Dean. Or, hey, how about this? Uh, Cut out the middleman, and you don't have to go to, you know, a dead person's family for this. Get James Franco. There you go. Easy. Solved. I know that they've gotten the family's permission for this, but something about it just feels so perverse. The idea that They're just going to take this guy who's been dead and buried for, again, half a century and whip him up into doing things that he's used his image, have him acting out things that he never agreed to. They did do something kind of similar like this ages ago. Lawrence Olivier, I think it was, turned up in Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow using archive footage. Uh, But it just leads to a weird place and it leads to a weird place in terms of crediting the actual act how is this going to be credited is james dean going to get a credit he didn't do anything they're not even going to be using his voice like from my perspective there's a couple of things wrong with this whole idea one again the acting credit there are there are actual unions that fight for actor credation so that's going to be a problem. And the other thing is, I see, I do understand sometimes the use of deceased actors, but only when you're bringing them back for a short amount of time to play characters they already played. The, mm. Like, doing the CG for Grand Moff Tarkin, 
in Rogue One, doing the CG for Carrie Fisher as Princess Leia in Rogue One. Um, in Gladiator, sense. one of the actors died halfway through production. They had to finish his his role with CGI. That you're right. That makes that makes sense, and that is yeah. is is honouring their memory. It is allowing their work to to come across on screen rather than recasting them. And it's a whole thing of like allowing for the canon of a narrative to continue. Whereas James Dean was never in a Vietnam War movie. The, what is the reason why specifically him? He was a fantastic actor once in a generation. He was brilliant. One of the best actors who ever lived. But there are so many other actors who can play this role. And seriously, his he said the only actor we could find to play this role is James Dean. Two things. One. James Dean is a leading man. He was a leading man. Not a supporting actor. If you get James Dean, he was playing the lead. And two, seriously, fuck you, dude. There were heaps of actors working today that would kill for that sort of role. Kill for the opportunity. It's also worth pointing out that this might be somewhat heretical to say, but James Dean was only ever in three movies. He did a lot of television work, but he was only really ever had three major movie roles. There's a sort of fetishization of him as the ultimate actor because he died very tragically, very young. But I I do sort of have to suspect that if he had lived and gone on to perform, you know, we wouldn't necessarily hold him up as this ideal symbol of the counterculture of the 60s it's cashing in let's be honest here this is what it is it's got nothing to do with james dean is the perfect person to play this role it's got nothing to do with you know we searched far and wide and all we could think of was a guy who died half a century ago it is about money they put this news story out it's created a ton of publicity we're talking about it here right now we wouldn't be talking about it if it was just some guy that they cast it's money they know that they can get more money resurrecting james dean than they would get if they just cast someone else it is the cashing in on the man's legacy to line their own pockets and that i think really sums up ultimately the grubby nature the the gross nature of what i what i find about this they they're capitalizing on that symbol of him as a vietnam era counterculture figure that he attained by by dying quite tragically and there's just something that's just it's and you it it does sort of i'm not going to go like the full twilight zone here of oh what does this mean for the future but it does what well i suppose i am what does it mean for the future are we just going to get to the point where where actors are just there in movies years and decades after they've died are we going to see i don't i don't know alan rickman turn up in a movie 10 years from now are we going to see Lawrence Olivier or Gregory Peck or Marilyn Monroe headlining movies again? And then what does that mean for actors working today? What does that mean for accreditation? What does that mean morally and ethically? What can you simulate that person doing when they haven't been around to give their consent to that? And that ultimately is the really thorny issue. Maybe James Dean would have hated this script. 
maybe he would have despised this character. We can never know that. But he is being, his image is being used as this macabre marionette to make these people money. And it just rubs me the wrong way. Mm. And he's not even going to be making the artistic choices that he would have in something like East of Eden or Rebel Without a Cause, which were the entire reason why those characters came off the screen the way they did. Like, it's exactly as you said. It's just going to be a James Dean puppet. Because it's not really going to end up being an actor making choices. It's going to be a director going, you sit there, you say this line, as James Dean would have said it. And that's not going to have the spirit of James Dean. Like, don't get me wrong, I, I, I said, you know, he's only done three movies, he has this reputation before he died. That's not to say he wasn't a terrific actor. He, he absolutely was. He did some incredible performances, and it is a true tragedy that that talent was lost in the way that it was. But it's not going to be him. It doesn't matter if you plaster his face over someone else. It's not going to be a James Dean performance. You're not going to get that part of it. It's it's not... Yeah, it's just really odd. None of us... Well, you you guys have done some acting. I, I haven't, but just the thought of, you know, 50 years after I'm dead, if someone's out there making animated versions of me doing things that I never did or agreed to do or acting out, you know, stuff that has a point of view I might not agree with or an opinion I might not share. You know, it's a, it's a robbing the dead of their agency. Yeah, exactly. It just... And it comes, it comes back to that whole deep fakes thing. How far can we go with it? And this isn't even touching on the horrible things that the internet does with it, but mm. On the sort of perspective of you are able with this technology to sometimes pretty accurately copy someone's mannerisms and make them seem like they're doing things that they would never do. And legally, it is questionable. Morally and ethically, it is abhorrent. The big difference also that I think makes this stand out and sort of be like, oh, is this a precedent that we're willing to set? You brought up deepfakes. Deepfakes is, is more of a... Um, the difference between deepfakes as we currently understand them and this is that it's not just someone on a computer in an apartment somewhere. This is a big company. This is millions of dollars that they're using to do this in the expectation that they will make hundreds of millions of dollars. It is the commercializing of that technology and it legitimizes it and it muddies the waters for those conversations. When we start talking about the, the things that are, are used with deep fakes that are more morally questionable than this, you, you have some, some pretty dodgy stuff and, you also have, I know that there's some concern going forward of what deepfakes will mean for stuff like electoral security, that you could have a candidate for higher office and just have a deepfake of them saying or doing something that they never did and be circulated. We've we already seen uh, parts of that. The, the American Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, had a deepfake circulated of her a few months ago that showed her drunk when she was not and 
social media platforms refuse to do anything about it. And it's sort of what that's all happening and we're having these problems all at the same time that this is happening. And this would seem to me to legitimize and legitimize this this kind of thing and to muddy the waters, especially legally. It's just not it reminds me of this movie. I forget what it was called. It was like 2014. Robin Wright played a, a a version of herself, an alternate reality version of herself who was sort of washed up and she signed away her likeness to a movie company and they started creating like digital movies with her, using her likeness to create movies. Sequel and... to Princess Bride. Um, this, this whole thing is almost exactly the plot of the one Simpsons Treehouse of Horror thing. Where Hollywood hires Homer Simpson to kill all these celebrities so they can use them in ad campaigns. <laughs> yeah, this, this is, is almost exactly, exactly that. that. Except there's no big fat man running around slaying people. The only difference yeah. between these companies and Ed Gein is that Ed Gein wasn't given permission by the family. Well, you you also this is not a new thing either. Um, there's if you look at if you look it up on YouTube, there is an advertisement for Singing in the Rain that took the, uh, I forget what his name was, the actor who did Singing in the Rain? Gene Kelly. Um, Gene Kelly, yes. That they that they used his image and pasted it over someone doing a very modern sort of breakdancing kind of thing and used it in an ad campaign. So this is not new. It's just that it's never been really done on this scale before uh and the movie that i was referring to with robin wright is called the congress uh anyways moving on a fifth scream film is in development at spyglass media it recently acquired the dimension film library with lantern entertainment uh this has been reported by multiple places now including deadline we have no details. We don't know if it's a sequel. We don't know if it's a reboot. We don't know if it's something else. We just know that it exists. Personally, I do hope it's a sequel. Because they did number four, and that was alright. They looked at a whole lot of the modern horror stuff. But this could be really cool in terms of what's happening right now with horror. With stuff like Chucky, with Child's Play, the new one, with Mark Hamill. You've got stuff like Halloween, Candyman, and all of that. It would be really cool to see a, a sequel, honestly. Because the stories aren't done completely. Well, you brought up Halloween, and there's maybe, I suppose, an interesting thing that they could potentially do there is take the Halloween route and just do a, a version of the story that play on the fact that we're getting these rewritten continuities now and do a version of Scream that has ignores everything except one and two, but also jokes about the fact that it's ignoring everything except one and two. Well, even Halloween did that, where someone's like, oh, didn't you hear like, Michael Myers was her brother? And it's like, no, that was just a s urban legend or something. That is an interesting route, and I was thinking about that when, you, when I saw the news, but... That's not necessarily doing a satire on the topic. That's just doing the thing. What it would have to be is, if it's a proper sequel to the series, it would have to carry on from the fourth one. And it would have to have, I guess, these urban legends come around of 
hey, uh, did you hear what happened in L.A. about this? Did you hear what happened at that university from the second movie? And I guess play with that idea of, I don't know, bringing something from the original back. Like, I know that Skeet Ulrich's character died. I know that Billy's dead. But what if he's not? The... It is worth pointing out also that if this gets made, it would be the first Scream film without the involvement of director Wes Craven, who has passed away since yeah. filming Scream 4. Um, and it reminds me sort of, I'm, I'm prompted to remember his film New Nightmare, the mm-hmm. Nightmare on Elm Street movie, which brought everything into real life and had the actors playing themselves. And it did made me think, you know, maybe that might be a way to do that. Um, that there's a interesting version of that, especially now that they sell ghost face masks at Halloween stores. If you added that into it and you added the social media thing and the TV show and all of that stuff, that could be an interesting way forward. And it might be a really interesting way of honoring Wes Craven is to sort of do this throwback to this movie of his that was so cutting edge when it came out uh, 25 years ago. And this allows you to mix the casts from the movies and the TV show and have them play themselves. You You can really play up on that whole conceited Hollywood actors against these more down-to-earth, Netflix-y, social media, hip, you know, younger actors from these shows. You can have Courtney Cox overplay herself. You can have David Arquette try to convince his sister to be involved. You can really go hard into comedy, but also, yeah, this idea of maybe it's a cult of ghost faces trying to make Scream a reality. And you get Skeet Ulrich back. Yeah, exactly. Because he has been crushing it on Riverdale. And again, that is a fantastic idea. Because you could start it off with the the movie within the movie that they usually do. The, what is it? The slash films or whatever. (laughs) And then pull out of that to the characters in Scream getting attacked. They pull out of that, and it's on a two. It's just a, um, it's one of those private viewing rooms. But like, here's here's my pitch, right? It's all of the actors are getting killed off by Ghostface in the order that they were killed off in the series, and then like at the end, it's like, oh, who is this? Is it Skeet Ulrich? No, because he dies at that point where he would have died in the, in the series, and. At the end of it, it just turns up as like some slimy film executive who's trying to drum up a underground social media campaign for a new screen movie. Oh, you tie, <laughs> you can just tie, you can tie this into the whole resurrecting dead actors thing. He's killing these people so he can put them in a mm. new screen movie. Skeet Ulrich won't be in his Scream 5, so he's killed Skeet Ulrich so that he yeah. can get Skeet Ulrich's license. Yeah, because yeah, all of these actors are saying, oh, no, we've moved on. Nev Campbell's mm. like, uh, we finished the story in the fourth one. We had Emma Roberts' character. It, it's done. It's done. Wes is dead. You're not going to bring him back. So it's it's over. The TV show, that ended. It's doing fu- That's fine and all this. But this executive's like, eh. But what if, though? 
All right, Hollywood, we're right idea. here. Hire us to write your screen movie. Yes. Absolutely. I've been wanting to make a thing like this for years. And I really want to meet Skeet. I really want to meet Skeet. I reckon Nev Campbell and Courtney Cox. Mostly so I can get to Dave Schwimmer through Courtney Cox. But that's just uh, my own weird thing. You're revealing something about yourself. <laughs> uh... <laughs> Paramount is resurrecting Paranormal Activity for a seventh outing. Uh, it's got a scheduled release date of March the 19th, 2021. Have you guys seen all of the Paranormal Activity movies? Basically, yes. Yes. Um, my favourite one is the... Uh, the Marked, the marked Ones. ones uh, which is the fourth, I think. It's you, re- you a start, spin-off. You start to lose count. Uh, Ghost Dimension sucked. But <laughs> Ghost Dimension no. had a few cool things. Ghost Dimension sucked because you could see what was happening. Yeah. I'm. I really like the first one. Um, they started to get really lazy. Yeah. Over time. But if you've got someone who has a really good idea, if you've got someone who has a fantastic script, fantastic innovation for it. Which the first Paranormal Activity was. It was it was something different to what was being seen. you got to make this next one different to all of the ones that came before. It's otherwise, filmed like a movie. Otherwise, you've just got Ghost Dimension and number three again. This is a- another interesting question is, is this going to be a reboot or is it going to be a sequel? Because the original series of films up until now... It had such an interesting pattern of storytelling to it because it was so clearly something that they didn't plan ahead of time. They were not prepared for the success that they got with that first movie and they were not prepared to release a movie once a year for the next six years. And so it got to this point where the whole thing was sort of this rickety construction of mythology and lore that was like held together with duct tape and chewing gum. And they did some... In- like they. Credit to them, they did some interesting things and they tried to tie the movies to each other in an interesting way. And one of the really fascinating things about Ghost Dimension, which you say you, you, you didn't like, but the way that they tied the ending of Ghost Dimension back in and sort of made the whole series a closed loop, set everything to rest in such a way that it would seem to me really, really difficult to do a direct sequel and if you were to do a direct sequel to do one in a fashion that respects the end of the series as it currently stands see but the whole thing is in the the paranormal activity sorry i was watching this retrospective of it and it really only does seem like the most plot happens or the most sort of interesting mythology plot about this weird cult of old women Happens in the last 15 minutes of each movie. Hmm. So, I do think you can carry this on because it's only a closed loop for certain characters. This cult of old women is still out there doing other stuff. And the uh, the ending of Ghost Dimension, certainly not to spoil the ending of Ghost Dimension. Never would I do that. But Oh, perish it's... the thought. If they were to follow on from that, there is a there is a corporalization 
that takes place at the ending of Ghost Dimension, a crossing over into our plane of existence, that if they pursued that, I could see that, like you said, it had to be something completely different. That would be completely different. Um, but would it be, would it make sense uh, given what paranormal activity is as being like this house with found footage stuff is there a way to do is there a way to do that when it's not a when it's an actual manifested presence in the world well what i think they can do is issue the old lady cult issue the la setting and go somewhere a little more appalachian go somewhere perhaps Canada or northern United States find a different haunting concept find something you can tell a new story with because this doesn't necessarily have to carry on that closed loop it can be simply in the same world as the first or just change the style of setting that it is in terms of what building you could do like a shopping center there are lots of security cameras in a shopping centre. Haunted shopping centre. You could do a farmhouse. A farmhouse in the middle of nowhere that like has night vision cameras to, you know, scare off cattle rustlers or something. Do I don't know prison. what farmers do. You do a prison. There are but but you could have that, you know, farm in the middle of nowhere, miles and miles away from the nearest people. Oh, what's this? The phone line doesn't work anymore. The, something's blocking the internet signal. How can we contact anyone? And now weird stuff's happening. You know, there's there's a way to strike different tones than those first six movies struck without necessarily dropping all of the thematic stuff and the technical stuff that made Paranormal Activity Paranormal Activity. There's one thing that I want them to add, and it's something that was added in a little film called The Ouija Experiment which you are going to have to watch one of these days, where ghosts hold video cameras. When someone dies, uh, they come as a ghost holding a video camera. So I'm fascinated by the idea of, hey, maybe we see, we do sort of a version of the movie from the perspective of the ghost. Okay. From the perspective of Toby, and you just call it Paranormal Activity, Toby's Revenge. Okay, so... Or just call it Toby. So for context, it'd be the Toby Chronicles, you know. Um, but for context, the Ouija experiment film, you have to watch it for the twist at the end. It's not very good, but the twist will blow your mind. It will. And um, not in a good way. Don't watch the second one, though. Oh, the second one is um, just garbage. Just for clarity's sake, we're not talking about the Universal Ouija movies. We're talking oh, God, about no. the rip-off Ouija experiment movies. The Ouija experiment, it's good until the ending where it's just wild. It's decent until the ending when yeah. it loses its mind. Yeah. It loses all sense of what it was trying to do. And it's one of those things that changed my opinions on the art form. Yeah. <laughs> that's it, that's heavy praise, Sean, for it's not it's Ouija not praise. experiment. It's not praise. It it broke the rules. It broke the rules. It broke the rules that it, it, it itself set up. And it really, it changed where I put the bar. 
I'm the... just saying that's like a back of the box quote if ever I heard one. Change the way that I view the art form. <laughs> the director is an auteur in the worst possible way. Yes. And I want to shake his hand. All right. It'd be gross though. Last but I story. Shake his hand. Last story. Disney has formally confirmed that Hulu is going to be the streaming home of FX under the banner of FX on Hulu. This plays into their mature, family-friendly streaming divide where they're segregating all the family-friendly stuff like Star Wars, Marvel, and the traditional Disney stuff on Disney+, and all of the more mature stuff that they got with a Fox acquisition like FX, like a lot of the uh, more adult-aimed movies those are going to go to Hulu. Now, this is the interesting part of this. Some shows branded FX on Hulu won't actually air on FX first. They're going to be Hulu exclusives that are going to be under the stewardship of the FX creative team and the FX production departments. So as part of this, they have moved four series over to Hulu that had previously been announced for FX. So three limited series, A Teacher, Mrs. America, and Devs from Alex Garland, who did Annihilation and uh, wrote Sunshine. And The Old Man, which was a pilot at FX and has now been picked up to series at Hulu under this brand FX on Hulu. This is uh, a spy show starring Jeff Bridges and John Lithgow. Um, It's been ordered to series to air next year, 2020. I'm quoting from Deadline here, The Old Man, which is based on the eponymous novel written by Thomas Perry, centres on Dan Chase, Bridges, who absconded from the CIA decades ago and has been living off the grid since. When an assassin arrives and tries to take Chase out, the old operative learns that to ensure his future, he now must reconcile his past. And Lithgow's going to play like um, this former colleague of his from the CIA who's brought in to track him down now in the present. Lithgow! I love Lithgow. John okay. Lithgow. Love it's, me some Lithgow. It's John Lithgow hunting Jeff Bridges. Yes. That's really, really cool. It's just a shame we live in Australia where there is no Hulu for now. Well, I, I fully expect Hulu to go international very soon. Disney is the controlling shareholder now. It has creative control of its, of its decisions. They're moving all of this stuff over onto Hulu and there there's all sorts of reporting and like you know statements by people in charge at Hulu at like financial earnings reports and things like that that oh Disney wants to put a lot of money into us now so we're going to be really ramping up production on original series we're going to be doing a lot of really new and interesting things so this this FX on Hulu thing uh, seems to be a part of that, so I wouldn't be surprised at all if Hulu went international in the near future. Obviously, they're working on the Disney Plus launching that at the moment, but after that's done, I would expect to see Hulu start rolling out to more countries. Hulu says, I'm sorry, sir, but we just can't. We don't have the technology. You'll do it, or you'll mutiny, and you're too much of a coward for that. Oh, uh-huh. Hulu, you got to go have... Gonna have to go international. Oh. But Sarah, we cannot do it. I do think that it's that it is interesting that they're uh, tasking the the FX production people with coming up for, with some stuff for Hulu. That's not necessarily going to air on 
FX, like it's this taking of the FX brand and moving it over into streaming in an interesting way. I think that's, I don't know. I don't know what that means for the future of FX. I think it means good things, but it's just something I wasn't expecting. I think it's going to allow FX to become more of a set-in-stone production company. Less of, hey, we're making things for our own channel. And it could only mean sort of stretching their legs into other things. Because I know that the CW works with many companies and they don't just put things on their own channel. So, and the CW has been really successful and FX could end up going in the same direction. I wonder what this means, though, for American Horror Story. Like, is American Horror Story technically owned by Disney now? Yeah. Okay, so Jessica Lange is an evil queen in a Disney thing. Nice. Or she's a Disney princess, whichever way you want to take that. Dennis O'Hare is a Disney princess. Nice. Disney owns everything that the studios that they bought produce. And if if it's something that airs on FX but is not produced by the studio, um, then they have the contract on it anyway because it airs on the on the thing. Disney is just it's, it's like Mortal Engines. Disney's just this big thing eating other cities. Well, they've done an all right job of handling FX so far. I mean, it's been less than a year, but we haven't seen it defanged or anything we haven't like american horror story 1984 still out it still came out it's not like they said all right everyone let's tone this down they've Um, tuned it up it's the bloodiest season so far i'm cautiously optimistic with this news of of disney embracing hulu and fx as as a place to make more mature stuff i hope that they keep that ethos and they don't let the uh mouse house of it all seep through well you you keep saying the sort of Disney Plus being more family-friendly and Hulu being more mature content. I don't necessarily see the Marvel shows like, you know, Buck, Winter Soldier and Falcon being necessarily toothless in any way. Or The Mandalorian. I feel like they are going to be somewhat mature stories, though. Oh, yeah, but they are... Star Wars is a family brand, and Marvel is a family brand. There's stuff that people take their six-year-olds to see in the cinema. No, that's it's not necessarily means that doesn't necessarily means that it's G-rated, um, but it's certainly on a different level than a lot of what is like Sons of Anarchy and American Horror Story are very different from Star Wars and Marvel. Yeah, you're not gonna see Captain America. Sn- Pez dispensering a drug dealer. You're not going to see that. You're not going to see the Falcon pick someone up and drop them. Alright, that's the end of the, the news segment. I think it worked well this week. I think that uh, just focusing on a few stories really let us go in depth in a way that, that we weren't able to before because we were rushing along just trying to keep up. So I think that's a, that's a good format for use in the future, don't you guys? Yes, I agree. I it's much more concise. Mm. So why don't we move on to what we've been watching recently? Why don't you take us away, John? Absolutely. Um, so 
for this segment, I'm going to talk about... Because I lo- watch a lot of films with Harley, because why not? We do everything together. Why not do this as well? I I will talk about a few movies that I have real thoughts about, and then Harley will talk about a film that we watched last night that we've been looking forward to since it was announced. Uh, that would be Doctor Sleep. But I will talk currently about two films that I think need more viewership. And the first one being a film called Game Night. It stars Jason Bateman and Rachel McAdams, and also Billy Magnuson in a fantastically silly and dim-witted performance. It's a comedy about a group of friends who have a game night, you know, every week, and they get wrapped up in this criminal conspiracy when Jason Bateman's brother, played by Kyle Chandler, who is very quickly becoming one of my favorite actors because of his performance in Catch-22 and also in Godzilla King of Monsters. He gets kidnapped and you find out he is actually a smuggler. So he's been kidnapped by actual criminals while these Jason Bateman's character and his wife and his friends all think that this is part of this staged kidnapping done by a you know, escape room company. So it's all about them and their antics. It's a fantastic movie. It's very funny, amazing comedic performances. It's a gorgeous looking film. The cinematography is stellar. I, and it's just brilliantly, brilliantly shot. Every comedic set piece is in itself a version of a board game or a party game that you would play. Like, Pass the Parcel is them throwing around this really important, you know, MacGuffin. There's a kind of Operation-esque scene which is just comedic gold from gunshot to, you know, payoff. It's just brilliant. And there's even a Jenga kind of moment. And it's fantastic. It was directed by two of the writers of Spider-Man Homecoming. And they were originally set to be directing The Flash. That ended up falling through, but it's very fantastic. I thoroughly recommend it. Yeah. I film... saw it in the theaters when it came out last year. I agree, it's it's a hilarious movie. It's one of my favorite ones from last year. Um, personally, my favorite bit is how at the beginning of the film, Billy Magnuson is talking about the rich people fight clubs, <laughs> and when they actually get to this rich person's place, he goes, "I knew it! I knew it was real." I love the the fake outs at the end. Yes, that just got the a piling. Huge... That got a huge reaction out of the audience that I saw the movie with. Oh, Jesse Plemons. Jesse yes. Plemons. He's so oh, good. So good. He's excellent in, uh, in Vice, too. He's so, so effective sure. in that. I'm sure he is. But he's so creepy in this. Oh, yeah. <laughs> he pulls off such an excellent energy. Okay, so moving on. 
I want to talk a bit about 2018's King Lear, starring Anthony Hopkins, Jim Carter, Tobias Menzies, Emily Watson, John McMillan, Florence Poe, Emma Thompson, Anthony Calf. Oh my god. <laughs> this is an acting masterclass, if there ever was one. It was. It's directed by Richard Ear. It's an adaptation of, obvi- obviously... William Shakespeare's Tragedy of King Lear. It's set in modern day and is about... Oh, it's also got Jim Broadbent as the Earl of Gloucester. It's about Anthony Hopkins' King Lear. He's coming to the end of his time here on the corporeal plane. And he is abdicating the throne to his daughters. He's got three. Two of whom fawn over him... Begging, basically, for power. And his youngest daughter, played by really well by Florence Poe, her name's Cordelia, she refuses to bow to his narcissistic, I guess, intentions, and is sort of ego-stroking, and says, I love you as a daughter, no more, no less. I'm not going to lie to you like my sisters have. Uh, So he... Denies her completely, kicks her out, she gets married off to the French, and slowly but surely, he's unraveling, and Edmund, the bastard son of the Earl of Gloucester, starts his own little scheme in order to gain power and gain respect. I won't I won't spoil it even though it's a very old Four hundred years old. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You have to see this adaptation. This Anthony is the Hopkins. one that they sort of frame it as being like a, a nebulous post-Brexit environment. Yeah. Isn't it? It's... Where it's sort of fallen into a sort of dystopic authoritarianism. Yes. Also, Andrew Scott. Andrew Scott is also is in, in it. In this, you'd know him as Moriarty mm. on Sherlock. And also as C on in James Bond Spectre. Yeah. Um, he plays Edgar, the son of the Earl of Gloucester. And he crushes it. Oh, yeah, and Christopher Eccleston is in it to round out this giant list of brilliant British actors. It's a fantastic film. Um, all three of the women who played the King Lear's daughters, Emily Watson, Emma Thompson, I've wanted to see them together in a movie for years, and they're brilliant together. <laughs> Uh, you've got Florence Poe, who does an excellent job as playing this character who legitimately does love her father, but sees that he's losing his mind. You've got Anthony Hopkins. He's always excellent. You know that. You know my opinions on Anthony Hopkins. You've got Jim Broadbent pulling a very, very good performance. And they do this very great thing in the film... Where as it things start getting grimmer and grimmer for people, people start dropping like flies, dying off off stage or off screen, and just like people start dropping dead, and to almost a hilarious to degree. almost a hilarious degree, and they the cutler starts seeping out. Of the image. It starts getting. Turning into black and white. And it's absolutely fantastic. I thoroughly suggest. And recommend. 
2018's King Lear. That's a very interesting technical detail. It's an unusual choice. Alright, so what I watched this week, for myself personally, Batman Begins by Christopher Nolan. Uh, I've seen it a bunch of times in the past. It's perhaps my favorite of the Nolan trilogy for Batman films. Uh, simply because it feels the most Batman. The city is particularly grimy. The architecture itself is also particularly grimy. And it's got Arkham Asylum in it. So, you know, I, I'm always happy for that. It's just a very well done film. The whole concept of fear being a controlling factor. Uh, to look at grief and how it can... How you can harness that to be a force for good, a symbol for good. Uh, the direction's fantastic. Fantastic. Um, the acting is really good, too. Christian Bale as Bruce Wayne is great. Uh, I still can't get over the Batman voice he does, though. The, where are the drugs going? It, it's silly, but it's less silly in this one. Is that a bat? Is that what a bat sounds like? There's There's less of it in this one. So, More of a Sylvester Stallone impersonation than it is a yeah a Batman. Uh, the, bat, the Batman side of things has always been the hardest part for the actors. I feel like you look at any of them: Keaton, Kilmer, Clooney, Bale, Affleck. They all like seem much more comfortable in the Bruce Wayne side of it because it's hard to must be hard to sort of sell Batman in the costume. And then you've got Adam West, who, who is just, just pure Batman the entire time, hundred percent. Uh, so the other movie I watched this week and last night actually was Doctor Sleep, Mike Flanagan's sequel to The Shining. Not the book, not the, the book. film. Stanley. Kubrick. So have you guys seen the film? Oh, of course I have. Of course, yes. Uh, yes. What did you think of it? The Shining is one of the best films ever made. Um, there, there are mistakes in it. Obviously, Kubrick is human. He's a human. He was a human being. Uh, as far as he can, as far as his mortality is concerned, uh, yeah, he was a human being. Um, his general demeanor might put off something separate. Uh, no, The Shining's a fantastic film. Um, great performances all around. And See, I was Sleep. never that thrilled on The Shining. I just found it really slow in places. And I didn't like the Jack Nicholson character, the presentation of of the character. Because you read the book and it's this very personal metaphor for Stephen King about... The, the, the book is this very personal metaphor for Stephen King about alcoholism and about, you know, what that does to his family because Stephen King was was an addict for a long period of time and then you have and the book is very about about very much about the descent of Jack Nicholson's character into the throes of alco alcoholism and the the thing that Stephen King always had a criticism for it which I agree with him which is you start the movie off and Jack Nicholson is already insane he's not playing that character as a normal person Maybe that's just Jack Nicholson, I don't know. But you don't get... He's already manic and weird and kind of creepy from the start of the movie, and it kind of undersells that. I know Stephen King was involved in a in a television miniseries version of it 
in the 90s. It was sort of like his not very veiled shot at Kubrick. They straight up called it Stephen King's The Shining. Yeah. And I prefer that version. I think it's more emotionally affecting. Does it have Blowjob Bear? No. Because that's the thing. Then I prefer Stanley Kubrick's. (laughs) Well, that's the thing about Kubrick is he has this reputation, and I think a deserved one for being kind of a cold director, as being a little bit detached from the emotions of his characters, and that I think is present in The Shining. He's very technically adept, and he frames his shots and he he films his setups brilliantly, but. I can never connect to any of the movies that I see of his. Well, uh, with Doctor Sleep, a lot of that will be assuaged. I do like Mike Flanagan a lot. Mike Flanagan is a fantastic director when it comes to shot composition and character intention. So, Doctor Sleep, it follows Danny Torrance, the child in the shi- from The Shining. After he escaped from the Overlook with his mother... They ended up in Florida. Uh, Danny still has The Shining. He has that psychic ability that was taught to him by Dick Halloran. And he continues to see Dick Halloran over the course of his life. Uh, Is the mother character still present or has she passed away? Um, She's in the film? She's in the film for a little bit. Did Uh, they they get Shelley Duvall back? No, no. but the recast was very good. They got someone um, who looked like her. But the best recast in it, uh, apart from, obviously, Ewan McGregor as adult Danny, is the guy they got to play Dick Halloran. He is phenomenal. He is so close to the Scatman Carruthers. It's spooky. Um, But yeah, it follows Danny... As an adult, it's years and years have passed. So we start and he's... I'm not going to go through the entire thing. But he uses his shine to help people. Not in a superhero sort of way. He works at a hospice care facility. And he helps people pass on. So he's earned this nickname from the patient's Dr. Sleep. uh, Because he helps them ease through uh, at the end of their lives. But he's psychically being contacted by this uh, young girl, Abra, who is a powerhouse in terms of her shining ability. The strongest... She has the strongest shine ever seen so far, at least by the group of villains of the film, who are known as the True Knot, led by Rose the Hat, Played by Rebecca Ferguson. Which is a fantastic performance. So, the True Knot are a group of immortal beings. They're not people anymore. That feast on the shine or the steam of uh, other people with the shine. So, they hunt down children to, obviously, feast on their abilities and their life essence. So, now Rose has found Abra. So, Danny has to help guide her and protect her from the true knot. I'm not doing it justice by my description of the plot. It's very good. It It's a very personal story about Danny, his 
connection with both his mother and his father because it goes into because Danny became an alcoholic as he grew older. And in this fantastic monologue he does, he talks about getting drunk and angry is the clo- is the easiest way he could get to know his father. Because his father was the same way. Um, which was very interesting. Uh, it does a lot of the... The movie has a lot of that visual language of The Shining. But it's a much more personal story. About... Uh, getting over addiction, getting over childhood trauma, and helping people, ultimately. So it retroactively brings up a lot of those things from the book of The Shining that weren't present in the film. So it was very, very good. Uh, Mike Flanagan is a fantastic horror director who I've heard uh, Warner Brothers is talking to for a DC film. So, that's another horror director they're bringing on. (laughs) Which has worked for them in the past, so. Okay, so moving on to Lawson. Um, Astound us with the films that you've seen. Um, Well, I have a relatively small docket for me this week. I only saw four movies, including (laughs) Beauty and the Beast. Wow. Okay. Uh, So, to start off with, we have a tiny little movie from 1991 called Closetland which stars Alan Rickman and Madeline Stowe. And it's a very fascinating film and a very small film. It's all set in the one room in this sort of dystopian, near-future, authoritarian state. And Madeline Stowe plays this children's author who has been arrested under suspicion of spreading treasonous material, things that question the government. Um, And she's brought into this interrogation room and alan rickman is there and he is the interrogator and he uses a whole bunch of uh methods of interrogating her including psychological torture physical torture um and it is them in a room for an hour and a half that is the whole movie is is set in this room with only these two actors uh and it's brilliant it's fantastic these i mean the actors carry it but it's a fantastic script as well and it's heartbreaking and it's unique and it's ambitious rickman in particular sells he gives his character dimensions which keep it from becoming a mustache twirling villain just a a, faceless arm of the state he gives it shadings that the script does as well that allows you to sort of wonder who this guy is and sort of shades him a bit more grey than he might otherwise be Madeline Stowe is very good it has a lot of um, excellent monologues and and acting moments it's actually I I considered uh, having a this be the movie that we do the deep dive into uh, this week. But ultimately I decided that its structure just being a conversation in a room was not really that great for that, what we do in the deep dives, but I really, really recommend you, you guys seek it out. I know that I only get you to watch the one movie a week, but I would be very interested to see what you think of, of closet land. It's 
incredibly difficult to find. Um, I managed to track down a Spanish DVD of it, but uh, that, as far as I can tell, is, is the only legitimate place that it's been released. It is on YouTube, uh, so... But, um, yeah, Closetland, it's, it's really... Yeah, I was kind of blown away by it, actually. Uh, I also watched Wes Craven's 1991 movie, The People Under the Stairs. Have you guys seen this? No. No, but I've heard of it. It is a hell of a thing. Uh, it is about a young uh, black boy who lives in a... Basically, a slum, a tenement building. And the landlords are just awful people. They don't keep up with the place. Uh, and they're one day over the rent so that they're going to kick this whole family out of this tiny apartment that they live in. And the mother, the reason they're over the rent is that the mother is very sick and is dying and needs surgery that they can't afford because America. And um, so to solve this problem, to get money for the surgery, to get money for the rent, this kid who's like 10, 11 years old uh, goes with a family friend and they go to rob the house of the landlords and they get in there and it's a it's really a don't breathe situation or more more really it's don't breathe is a people under the stairs situation but it's instead of the landlords being like this grisly grim serious psychopaths they are utter lunatics like giggling hee-hawing crazies and they're very much a satirical allegory of 80s capitalism the sort of reagan and ronald and nancy kind of figures like they're very much in that mode and they're very much of that sort of you know white picket fence traditional american family and it turns out that they've been trying to create the perfect like nuclear family out of these people that they kidnap like when someone comes and knocks on the door selling girl scout cookies or something or they come to check the meter from the local council or whatever they just take these people and try and hold them captive and make them be the perfect children for them and when they fail they lock them under the stairs the people under the stairs um so it's this very twisted and it's the whole thing is like this uh rube goldberg contraption of a house with like all these hidden passages and vents in walls and it's it's very bizarre and strange and you you cannot remotely describe it as being a serious take on the topic like it's a full-on crazy circus like atmosphere it's that kind of a satire it's impossible to miss the um the comedy of what they're doing and it's very strange i liked it i didn't love it the the evil couple are played by Everett McGill and I forget I forget the name of the woman, but they, they played the on Twin Peaks. They played husband and wife on Twin Peaks. Uh, and that was apparently like what got them the role was that Wes Craven watched Twin Peaks and he was like, Yeah, those two. But they're both very good. The kid actor is brilliant. Uh, he is really, really good. I'm not I won't say I'm not generally like a fan of kid actors, but there's it's, there's a level of sophistication that child actors usually can't reach, understandably so, uh, and that can sometimes be grating. But this kid was very, very good. And um, 
yeah, there was some noise about maybe it being adapted into a sci-fi TV series a little bit before Craven died, but there hasn't really been anything of that since. Anyway, the last thing I watched, aside from Beauty and the Beast, was I watched Beauty and the Beast The Enchanted Christmas, which is the 1997 direct-to-video sequel. I say sequel, it's not really. The the ending of Beauty and the Beast doesn't really give way to a sequel very well because all the things we liked about the first movie, the, the talking furniture and the beast and everything, those are all gone at the end of the movie. So what they do is they sort of... They set all of this movie, the sequel movie, in the montage from midway through. <laughs> the, the Beauty and the Beast, as Angela Lansbury's performing Beauty and the Beast, that montage. So it's like in the winter and it's Christmas time. That happens a lot with these... Disney movie sequels. Yeah. They're sort of mid-quels. They did the same thing with... Bambi. Lion uh, King, One Bambi, and a half Sort of with that. Stuff like Fox and the Hound has a mid It's very common. It's not very good. <laughs> that might stun you. Uh, it's, it's an entirely unnecessary film. It doesn't have a plot that goes anywhere. It's... Bell wants to celebrate Christmas, but the Beast doesn't want to celebrate Christmas because Christmas was when he was cursed, so he has a thing about Christmas. Tim Curry plays a pipe organ who used to be the court composer before everyone got turned into furniture, uh, and he's kind of liking this new situation where he's a piece of furniture because people pay attention to him now. The Beast is all sort of brooding now, so he likes the creepy dark music that the pipe organ plays. So... Tim Curry, Forte, I think his, his character's called, likes being like the counsel to, to the prince now. And he doesn't want to get turned back into a human because he knows it'll just be ignored again. So he sets out trying to ruin Christmas and trying to drive a wedge between Belle and the Beast so that the curse is not lifted. So his character and, from Home Alone 2. Yeah, it's been a long time since I watched Home Alone 2. But um, it's it's not... It's not very effective. It's it's actually very strange because everything in the movie is, of course, traditional 2D, except for Tim Curry, who is very rough and rudimentary CGI creation, which I suppose, which I suppose has the way of framing that character as being separate and distinct from the rest of the furniture, that he has this sort of slimy, textualist look to him that gives him a sort of... I don't know. It it gives him an otherworldliness, I suppose. That might have been the the reason that they went that route. But oh, that CGI has not aged well. Uh and it it looks quite dull. And I know we we're going to get into this when we talk about Beauty and the Beast about how aggressive the Beast is in this first iteration of the of the Disney story. He's much more in this sequel. At one point he because Belle he he has a misunderstanding with Belle, so he puts her in chains in a dungeon and tells her that she's going to rot in there for the rest of her life. And this is his big tantrum. And uh, he gets over it. He calms down a bit and comes back later, but still it's like, oh, God. You know, all the, the potential Stockholm Syndrome problems of Beauty and the Beast are there much more 
obviously in this this sequel but you know it's i suppose it's perfectly it's a kids directed video sequel to a kids movie and i suppose if you're just looking for something to sort of drop in front of a child to shut them up for an hour and a half that it's a perfectly effective uh thing for that to accomplish children aren't going to analyze it the way that i am (laughs) children just want there to be you know another oh more bell more beast more cogsworth and lumiere and if that's the only thing that needs to be satisfied then yes this movie does that I'm confused by the placement within the film of this other film. I thought the span of the something else montage was week, two weeks max? Yeah, they don't do a good job of setting out the chronology of that movie. It's either it's it either takes place over a week or it takes place over like three months and there's it's it's a strange they they never do a good job of in in the original film of fully defining how long a period of time it takes place in well i guess that means we should head on to beauty and the beast proper yeah before we begin on on the deep dive which spoiler alert is is going to be a spoiler filled deep dive uh i just wanted to ask you guys what version of the film you saw because there is an extended cut i learned watching it this time did you guys see the version of the film with human again the human again song in no no okay then you guys have watched the theatrical cut i've watched the extended excuse me Uh, extended cut yes they did a theatrical re-release of it in 2001 2002 and they reinserted a deleted song human again and they cleaned up a lot of the animation and the backgrounds and things. Is that all the difference there is? Um, let me double check here. But while I'm doing that, um, were you guys Disney kids? Did you watch a lot of, Absolutely. of Disney did, movies? Yes. So Beauty and the Beast was like a thing from your childhood? No, actually. Um, that's one of the ones we didn't see. We, we, we were pretty much uh, Lion King kids. And sort of Tarzan and, you know, all of those ones. Balto, Brother Bear, all of those more newer ones. But I, I'm i pretty sure we watched Beauty and the Beast. At some at point. At some point during our childhood. Uh, it's just yeah. not one I particularly remember, much like Aladdin. Um, yeah. Hercules was a big one for us. Yeah, I, I I was a Disney kid too. I saw The Little Mermaid and, oh, and yeah, Little Mermaid Beauty and the Beast and Aladdin. But um, my movies were like The Lion King, uh, Hercules, as you say. I liked Atlantis and Lilo and Stitch and, the, yeah. and Treasure Planet, that early period of 2000s Disney. Um, but my favourite was always Hunchback of Notre Dame, which I suppose might indicate a lot about me <laughs> that the darkest and weirdest and perhaps most twisted and depressing uh disney renaissance movie is the one that i connected with the most hercules don't you mean Hercules? Hercules. um i'm looking here at the differences between these two versions they did a surprising amount um i'm looking at imdb here 
the animation in some of the scenes went back through the cleanup department a second time to correct problems such as wavering lines and missing details. Small details such as blood in Beast's wound after his fight with the wolves was added. Uh, the end of the Something There sequence, the background has been changed. Six minutes of new footage was added between the song Something There and Beauty and the Beast, much of which is made up of this song uh, Human Again, which was originally taken out of the film for continuity purposes, but it was reworked and added into the Broadway version of the, of the show and then added into the movie for this re-release. This is the interesting bit here. During the Human Again song sequence, the household objects clean up the Beast's castle, which necessitated having the background artists go back and digitally repaint the backgrounds for every castle scene that followed so that the castle was clean and kept in continuity. Yikes. Is it at least a good song? Oh yeah, it's, it's, it's good. It's this very sort of dramatic chorus song. I liked it, I liked it quite a bit. It's not the best song in in the movie or anything, but it's oh, it's not. certainly a worthy addition. Did they did they include that in the twenty seventeen remake? No, no, they did not. No, they kept it pretty close to the. Except they theatrical. gave they gave the Beast a deleted song again from the first movie, Evermore. Yeah. Right. Oh no, it's it's there. It was, it was. Uh, oh yeah. Oh, it says there's a version of it here that I'm looking at. Hang on. Well, there is a, a YouTube video of it from 2017, or it might just have been on the soundtrack. Yeah. All right, so for this discussion, we'll be using the theatrical cut. A lot of the scenes yeah. that we're talking about are exactly the same, so that's all going to be consistent between both versions. It's just mm-hmm. we're not, we don't get that extra stuff, that extra song... <laughs> Yeah, see, this is the thing that I don't like about our all-streaming, all-digital future is you don't get a choice of what version of the movie you see. You know, which streaming service has it? Is it the theatrical version? Is it the extended cut? You know, oh, is the Lord of the Rings? Is it the extended cut or is it the theatrical version? Is it Apocalypse Now? It's it's the extended versions of the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, But but the fact that you have to look into all of that and keep track of all of that and oftentimes it doesn't really give you a good indication of what the answer to those questions are that's annoying alright we should head to doing the deep dive alright so the movie begins with this stained glass uh, backstory to what happened the beast was about what 11 uh, they don't was... quite make it clear like that's another thing with the continuity of the the film is they never really make it quite clear do they how long he has been well uh, the cursed L- later about halfway into the film during the be our guests song lumiere actually states that they've been sitting there and rusting for 10 years yeah and the beast's the rose will wilt on his twenty on the beast's twenty first birthday. So he's been so the prince like that since he was ten or eleven. Yeah. So this eleven year old prince, he turns away this old woman at seeks entrance in the to his castle. The prince is a dick and turns her away. But it where turns are his out, parents? Not and if sure. his parents are dead, then where is the regent? The peasantry killed them. We'll get well, into the classist the, you know, elements later on. Yeah. 
Well, that's um, the unfortunate ending to Beauty and the Beast, as it appears to be set in 17th century France, and 17th century France didn't end well for the aristocracy. <laughs> no. That's that's the sequel, is when they all get guillotined by the commoners. And Lumiere's the one to do it. Uh, so, what happens is, it turns out this old lady he turned away is an enchantress. And she does, as enchantresses are wont to do, curses not only him to be a beast until his 21st birthday, when which he will die. Uh, but oh, no, also, he'll stay a beast forever. He won't die. Oh, cur- She curses the entire castle and all of the people within it to which become Which seems like furniture. a phenomenal overreaction. Oh, yeah, definitely. Oh, definitely. But it and is what did all these people do? This is what enchantresses do. The people didn't do anything to deserve it, obviously. So, we hear all of that. The course has gone all gnarly and stuff. Gargoyles, dark, depressing, gothic. Straight out of Castlevania. And then we are introduced to Belle, the titular beauty. Uh, oh, just before we move on, in regards to the turning people into furniture thing, it just reminds me of something I forgot to mention about that sequel. So they go up to get Christmas lights and Christmas decorations. And all of these people, all of these Christmas decorations are um, people that have been turned into Christmas decorations. So for some reason, they've been sitting in a box in the attic for 10 years. Yikes. But like, it's like, why? Why haven't they just been roaming around like everyone else? It, it It's the unspoken horror of that... <laughs> direct-to-video sequel is that it kind of just suggests that they've locked these people away for no other reason than that they were transmogrified into Christmas decorations. Well, can't have them around all the year. Put them in the... You know, what we were really missing from from all of the versions of Beauty and the Beast was a toilet. (laughs) That's exactly true. We were missing that. That's got to be like the true. Everyone's shit. That's got to be like the true horror. It it was the porter. (laughs) The porter was turned into a toilet. Yeah. The the English porter. Hello, governor. Hello. Uh, Oh, let's see what you had for lunch the other day. It could be the court jester, though. Hello, Prince Adam. My, you're bigger than the last time I saw you. Looking real beastly today. We're asking the real unanswered questions here. Yes. Where are his parents? What did they... They got the chop. Who got turned into the toilet? And why isn't the bed a person? Mm. Anyway. Uh, What's the bed going to be like? Oh, yeah, it got... Yeah, there's a scene where she flops down on a bed and Holly was like, oh, what? Well, it's like, okay, so what's the bed going to say? And I said... This. Because it's just the bed. Uh, so, they were introduced to Belle. Uh, in this really fantastic number. Mm. This fantastic song. Uh, where she's going through town. Everyone's calling her weird because she reads. Yeah, uh, weirdo. <laughs> you, you like read to read books, books like a weirdo. You like accruing is... knowledge the old-fashioned way. It's it. This is the only thing that's that they they have against her is that she reads books. 
this is the entire genesis of her being viewed as strange and unusual is that she reads in a town that apparently has a library and a good library too. The library yeah. keeper's very nice. It's it's not like in the live action version where it's in the church and there's a bookcase with like five books. This is a proper bookstore. Like yeah. it's got books. I'm sure the other people in this town read or at least know how to read. And it, it's they in the song it's like this small provincial town. It it it's pretty bustling to my eyes. It doesn't look terribly provincial to me. It doesn't look like you're so far away from Paris that all of the Enlightenment just passed the place over over like it's the angel of death in Egypt. No, I think that this is just a group of people who are like, oh no, she's an outsider. She's from Paris. She's an outsider. We don't don't like them. And Maurice, eh, he's kind of weird, isn't he? Well, he is weird. Maurice is more just eccentric. This whole thing yeah. that this is, oh, this guy's crazy. That kind of comes out of nowhere too. Um, and I'm not yeah, just talking cause... about Gaston's scheme. I'm talking about the way that every everyone else in the town yeah. treats him. Right. You see this um, explosion go off in the distance. Just wait, we'll get yeah, to I, that. Yeah. So, but this is an excellent opening so- number. It's a very Broadway style opening number because it's a lot of story and exposition within the song. Um, and I. Do you guys think this is as good a time as any to talk about Howard Ashman and Alan Menken? Who? Oh, yes, who, yes, absolutely. Yes. Fantastic music, absolutely mm. class. So Howard the... Howard Ashman was the lyricist, and Alan Menken was the composer of the music, and the, they had their fingerprints all over this, and and the Little Mermaid. They're sort of responsible for the wave of, for, for Disney movies becoming musicals for, yeah. a, for a decade or so. But the really tragic part of this is that Howard Ashman, during the production of Beauty and the Beast, was dying of AIDS. And in fact, died several months before the movie came out and only got to see a, a work print version of it. Uh, but a lot of this music was stuff that he was literally writing and directing the voice performances of from his deathbed and alan menken he is disney in my eyes other songwriters have come on to disney projects like you know mark mancia and phil collins for brother bear and tarzan which i think are both fantastic films and hans zimmer for lion hans zimmer for lion king and elton john and tim rice and you've got lin-manuel miranda but no one can do Disney like Ashman and Menken. They are Al- pure. Alan Menken has won eight Oscars as for he his should Disney work. Deserved, deserved. So throughout this entire but, musical but number, also they were the team that did um, Little Shop of Horrors. Yes, yes. and that that's fantastic. Before they moved over to Disney, and it shows because Little Shop of Horrors also has that sort of song that entire town song skid row which is another fantastic it's got the i want song it's got the really jazzy sort of villain song yep this is this movie outlines the exact structure of all musical disney movies it has everything the i want song it has the establishing song as the villain song all of it well it is also like 
a continuation on from the little mermaid in that respect this did sort of cement the uh this was sort of the second in the series but by being the the second of these types of musicals they really cemented a lot of those tropes that you're talking about yeah um and it is worth pointing out that this is really the this and the little mermaid is sort of the thing that revived disney we were talking about early on about how disney is now this like corporate cultural behemoth that just consumes everything in its path and everyone and everything will be owned by disney before the the century is out behemoth is a little small i would talk more leviathan but we we talk about all of that now and it's easy to forget that in the late 80s it was disney was really struggling and they were even considering closing the animation department for a certain period of time before they started to get some hits again this is really like the the you know I'm reminded of video games like Call of Duty, the revive. <laughs> you know hmm. they could have just faded away into nothing and just through all of the. It is an incredible string of hits. Little Mermaid onto Beauty and the Beast onto Aladdin onto The Lion King, onto Hunchback of Notre Dame and Hercules and Pocahontas and Mulan. It's an extraordinary series are just knocking them out of the park i know there are you know pocahontas unfortunate in this day and age but raises some eyebrows yes at the time and still certainly financially looking back on them an incredible revival considering that disney had been in this not a downward spiral but certainly creative slump really ever since walt disney died so within this same song we also introduced the Gaston, who's our anti- primary antagonist. And, and he his... uses antlers for all of his, all decorating. Of his decorating. Correct. My what a guy, that, that Gaston. Gaston. Uh, and his little friend, Lefeu, uh who is surprisingly uh, short. <laughs> sorry, you <laughs> what? can take that out. Oh, no, don't cut that, that out. out. Leave it in. That's gold. <laughs> Yes, Harley. Yes, Tell us about his... how short he is. That is his main sort of distinguishing factor, that and he's a suck-up. He's I'm just telling you, really John, tiny. I'm telling you, John, keep that in or I'm quitting this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so Gaston is the man about town, you could say. Uh, but he's far from a Renaissance man. Oh, no, he's not smart. Uh, he's cunning. Yes. Uh, he is a warrior, a hunter, big, beefy bloke. And pick-up artist. He's, a, he's one of those uh, pick-up artists you see online, it, and hopefully not in person. Except he is very meaty. Like, he is a solid boy. Yeah. Uh, so, Gaston, he's... Everyone in town digs him, apart from Belle and Maurice. Because they see right through his. Oh, Maurice actually stuff. is like, oh hey, uh, what about Gaston? He doesn't like him. He's conventionally him. handsome. No, Maurice doesn't like him, but he accepts what he's good at, hmm. uh, essentially. Uh, and Gaston's like, oh, Belle's the coolest chick in this town. I'm gonna uh, neg her. But she, yeah, she's the only woman in town who is as pretty as I am. Therefore, I must have her. Yeah, she she is a a status symbol to him. She is a a jewel to be worn on his arm. Yes, and he's it's a misogynist. This, 
yes, and it's all of his misogynistic behaviour, which is what makes, even with all of the problematic stuff that goes on with the Beast, it's what makes the Beast palatable as a romantic option, is that exactly. this is the alternative. Yeah, and this entire town, throughout the entire song, you're hearing she's weird, but she's beautiful. Her name, Belle, is literally beauty in French. They say that. They, in they the say song. in the song. Is it any wonder that her name means beauty? Her looks have got no parallel. Yeah, and really, Gaston, who's primarily concerned with aesthetic qualities, because he, like he said, like you said, uses antlers in all of his decorating. Uh, My what a guy. Aesthetic is all to him. Yes. So he. Makes you wonder her. why he hangs out with such a short guy, eh, Harley? Shut up. So, uh, they have a little... Bella and Gaston have this little interaction. He takes her book, then is like, where are the pictures? And all of that. So, this isn't a porno mag, Gaston. Back up. Like, I like pictures in my novels. And also, that book does have pictures in it, by yes. the way. Uh, so... But, like, throughout this whole song... We do get a really good sense about Gaston and Belle and just how the town in general reacts. But then we meet, then we meet Maurice, Belle's father. And uh, he, in the distance, he, we see this explosion. He enters the story occur. in the same way that I would expect any kind of dim-witted inventor to. An explosion goes off in the distance. Everyone in the town is laughing. They're not trying to, you know, run to help him. Because they just see this plume of smoke and they're like, huh, maybe he's killed himself this time. But no, Belle runs off home to help her father. And you, you fully expect Maurice to get up covered in soot. I meant for that to happen. That explosion means that I'm close. He's a, like a more dim-witted Doc success. Brown. Yes. Yeah, he's, he's really good-natured. You gotta come back with me, Marty. Where? Back to the castle! Uh, so, Ruiz is making this invention that can chop wood quickly. Why he's inventing it when they have Gaston? Anyone's guess. Uh, he's using it as part of a competition. He's going over to uh, a much larger provincial town to win a competition with his new machine. Bell, He's I'm cracked s- steam power. Bell, so that's I'm impressive. Serious. I'm gonna break Paris. It's gonna happen this year. Like, he really he cracked steam power, so that's that's impressive. The machine is woefully unnecessary. Woefully unnecessary. But though. much much like other you know champions of industry, Steve Jobs, Elon Musk, you know they do some things that are just woefully unnecessary. But they that's why they get the big bucks. Uh, and that's so, what Maurice is hoping to be. So he heads out into the woods. He's like, I will be back. But as he's going through the woods on his horse, Philippe, who's a fantastic nervous, horse. The most nervous horse in all of existence. <laughs> uh, they come to this crossroads. One of them is a dark, you know, sort of pathway. The other is dark and covered in smoke. Fog. Fog. Trees that look like they crawled from the depths of hell, like something out of a Sam Raimi film. And you hear wolves. And you hear wolves. Philippe's like, like, I'm going to go down... That way. Uh, and, and, the good way. And Maurice is like, no, 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 no. You'll take me down the path of righteousness. I'm, I'm going to take you down, down the path, path that rocks. rocks. 
So they <laughs> they take what Maurice calls a shortcut. Uh, they go down. They go down a bit. Uh, then Maurice is like, "Where have you led me, Philippe?" And and, and shock horror. Maurice has no sense of cardinal direction. He just kind of he would get lost in his own house if things didn't look the way they did. He. I'm surprised that he knows how to get out of the basement, to be honest. He seems like the kind of guy who would forget how to wear pants if they didn't have two holes in like, them. It's lucky that he lives on the edge of town, or he never would have made his way out. <laughs> it's like, it's oh. like, what's... This isn't a provincial town. It's like a metropolis. It's labyrinthian. No, uh, Maurice. So, yeah, Maurice gets lost, ends up at the Beast Castle. So, well, But he... what happens to Philippe? Isn't Philippe it the wolves? Gets scared. Philippe the gets scared. Philippe gets scared. He hears the wolves and stuff. Philippe Philippe's like, like screw this. I'm, I'm out. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> it's, it's, like, it's like, Maurice, you led me down this path. You made your bed. You can lie in it, old man. I'm going. I'm going back to the town. Bye. So Philippe books it. Philippe books uh, it. And Maurice is suddenly thrown into Castlevania. Yeah, so... Philippe has Not- gone. Maurice goes up to the w- door of the castle. You can almost on hear it. vampire it killer opens. playing in the background. Then uh, he walks in. The castle is haunted, as it turns out. Or enchanted, cursed, you take your pick. Souls have been placed into objects. We can say that much. So... Maurice finds Cogsworth and Lumiere. Uh, they Cog- have a chat. Yeah. Cogsworth, who he is takes this high very well, aristocracy. Maurice, Maurice takes yeah, this Maurice, very well. Uh, he has a much milder reaction than I probably would. Oh, yeah. yeah. He's fascinated more than anything. He starts, like, I guess fiddling with Cogsworth, like, uh how does this even work? And Cogsworth, like, I have not consented to this. You put me down... <laughs> Now, so you know, yeah, he does like open up Cogsworth's face and start messing around with his insides, doesn't he? Yeah, that, what's Lumiere's... that like the equivalent of brain surgery? <laughs> G- yeah, Gumby comes out. I need the brain oh, specialist. specialist. Uh, so he's Maurice is saying this very, very well. The hatback uh, is like, sir, 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 it's all right. You, you come, come sit, sit by the fire, sit by the fire. We'll get you a blanket. We'll get you some tea. You'll be fine. Uh, so then the beast finds out. He's like, Who's "What this? the hell have you done? Who's this?" And he get out. He screams at him. Maurice is like, "That, that, that! I, 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 I was lost. I was lost." It's one of those moments where they really make beast an animal. Yes. Where he gets down on all fours as he approaches, yes. and he doesn't do that very often. But no, it he doesn't. Gives it gives him this very sort of sinister introduction. It yeah. sells him as a frightening presence. Yeah, yeah, and he's really only this really garish beast up until, well, spoiler alert, Belle gives her freedom for Maurice. But we'll get to that. Yeah. Uh, so the beast has Maurice now, locks him in the dungeon. But now we go back to the town where... At Belle's place, where Gaston uh, Gaston's is... organized this massive proposal, this huge what proposal wedding, wedding proposal, and then wedding. 
he hasn't proposed yet, though. So, it's all organized outside. Then Gaston's like, you know what the plan is? I go in there, I propose, we walk out, you get the band to start playing. The first, like, the band goes nuts. It's like, that's not my tempo. Uh, were you rushing or were, or were you, you dragging? dragging? So you do know the difference. <laughs> but Belle is not impressed with Gaston. Absolutely. Uh, as was previously expected. Because he goes in, kicks his feet up, and is like, hey, you know what your future is going to... What I see in my future, my hunting lodge, you, my little wife, bunch of children like, rolling around on the floor, playing with the dogs. Or boys, I might add. Or boys, if I get a woman, she's going straight to Paris. So he gets kicked out by Belle and lands in the mud. Then Belle has her reprise of the Belle song. The first song in the piece. Where it has this amazing... It's her uh, I Want song. It's her yeah. I Want song. It's on this big vista, big moment, huge moment. It's one of the best moments of the film, I think. Oh, yeah. I, it's, it's, purely, it's pure Disney iconic. It's as Disney as it gets. And then Philippe rocks up. Philippe's like, oh, shit. Oh, shit. I left him. I left oh, him there. That looks as dog meat, Bell. He's, he's trapped in the castle, Belle. <sighs> Belle, we've got to go save him. Uh, I don't want to be sold to the glue factory. Belle's like, shit, I gotta go get my dad. So they walk back up to the castle. Philly does not want to be there. No. Uh, but Belle gets into the castle. Now the staff of the castle decide to be sneaky. <laughs> As opposed to before. Uh, and Belle, again, reacts pretty tamely yeah. to seeing these enchanted, this enchanted candlestick. But, like it's nothing. But Belle finds her father and then meets the Beast. Uh, the Beast is like, he's mine, he entered my property. You know, he trespassed. You get punished for trespassing. And Bella's Find his like, keepers. Well, Ownership is three-tenths of the law. <laughs> I now own your father. And by extension, his invention. That, that's not a, a money... That's like, not a plot point. Mon- yes, money we never find steam. out what happened to the steam-powered woodchopper, do we? We do. And if it goes to the castle, it's at the does end. it become enchanted? No, it wouldn't. It doesn't have a soul it, it, to attach to it. it. It comes to life... Father, kill me! <laughs> no, no, it doesn't have a soul to rip out and, and throw into my it. Suffering, father. Uh, so Bell makes a deal with the beast. I'll stay. I'll be your prisoner if you let him go. This is where the beast's facade breaks a little bit. When he breaks out of his hole, rah rah rah, and says, "You would sacrifice yourself for him." It's the first humanity we see out of him in the film. And it yeah. carries on from there, really. Mm. As yes. he defrosts. Um, and Maurice gets Set dragged out of the castle. He gets chucked into this decrepit carriage on the grounds that gets up and like runs out of like there a like a spider. <laughs> yeah, we, we started calling it Spider Carriage. And he becomes a 
a semi-plot hole later in the film. Yeah. Uh, but Philippe's just stuck there now. Yeah, Philippe's yeah, he can't leave, leave. I guess. Philippe's like, well, I guess I'll die then. <laughs> sure, uh, he doesn't die. die, but he just sticks around. Uh, and then, uh, after all of that happens, we have the Gaston song. Yes. No one hugs like Gaston, gives back rubs like Gaston, no one nuzzles sweetly the base of your neck like Gaston. Yeah, so we get all this manly stuff about Gaston, sung by Lafau, his short friend. He's in the he's in his dumps, like he's like he's like Belle, she humiliated Belle me humiliated publicly me in public and how, how can I come back from this? I got mud on me. Mud Lafau Mud And you know, Lafoe kisses his ass. Uh the whole town uh then gets in line. So it's a fantastic musical number. I might add. It's just it's another one of those villain songs that's you could almost see it today as a modern brag rap. <laughs> almost. And it's it's Gaston is an iconic song to the point where the internet has grabbed it and churned it and has replaced parts of the song with other parts of the song. So you've got Every Morning to Help Me Get Barge and then So I'm Roughly the Size of a Lodge. Uh, so, do you have anything to say about the Gaston sequence? Just that it's it's such a meticulously scripted song in terms of its lyrics it's so wordy and it's so it it really is a fascinating rhyming structure especially the way that it sort of blends the speaking to the singing and there's the sort of conversation bits between Gaston and your favorite short character the foe who I'm never going to live that up am I no um i just like every just every time that you you describe a new character, just describe them by their most yeah. obvious physical trait. <laughs> and, and, and and this is the psychiatrist. He's thin and he's taller than the foe. No, this is the psychiatrist. He's the crypt keeper. He's like tall the foe. It's like, this is Gaston. Right. He's muscly tall and so, uh, This is Belle. This is the, thing about, woman the thing about Hannibal Lecter is that he has he's slicked back still. hair. Okay, guys, come on. Um, and so, at this point, I do want to bring up the most recent version of Beauty and the Beast. Uh, the live-action film with Emma Watson as Belle, Luke Evans as the perfect Gaston, uh, Dan Stevens as Beast, and the most pitch-perfect casting in the entire film, Josh Gad as our favourite short man, LeFou. There is no casting in one of these films that has been better. Because he performs the song in the more on the in the new version so perfectly, so close to the original, that it's impossible to pick a favorite between those two. They're so identical. And Alan Menken came back and rescored it and well. give it that nice slow dance break in the middle too. So after this Gaston sequence, if we're done with that. Belle meets the servants no, in the castle. Maurice comes in. Oh, Maurice comes in. He's like, uh, my daughter's been taken by this huge, hairy, terrible beast. And everyone's like, yeah, yeah. sure, old man. 
It's like, yeah, dude, sure. Uh, go home. And Gaston's like, uh, hey, um, I've started thinking. Dangerous prospect. I know. And he's like, I've started thinking. If I get in with Maurice and get rid of him, I can convince Belle to get with me. And it's this really creepy little almost reprise of Gaston where it shows just how ugly a person he really is. You get this. This is one of the things that really complicates the chronology of the film. Is in how long a period of time does this story take place over? Because Belle is... If it takes place over three months, then Belle is missing for three months before they bother to see the mirror, you know? Yeah. And At she's such a weird fixture in the town. Like, they they know her by name. They know her face. They know that she's gone. They know that <laughs> she's gone because she's the weird girl who reads. They would notice her absence. But more disturbingly for Lafoe, the... He's in the, the snow implication would be that yes, that he's standing outside of Marisa's house in the snow for three months. Why didn't he? Why didn't Gaston be like, uh, just wait inside? Guess Lafoe would be dead. Um. So, then... unless he's so small that his compactness actually creates heat, that might be the case. Well, diamonds we are forged under pressure. That's true, and um, he is a diamond. So a short, no, he's a, he's short a terrible, diamond. He, no, 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 no. Don't get me wrong. Lefoe <laughs> is a terrible little man. Oh yeah, he's he's truly awful. But they try and soften him in the remake, don't they? They do. I like that though. It gives him more. It gives him more agency. And it's it's surprising that Lefoe doesn't have, you know, a temper as short as he is, because he can only take it about up to here. Come on, guys. Uh, so, Why are you being so short with us, Harley? Bell means You're being di- really small-minded. <laughs> Just have a little bit of patience here. <laughs> Just get it all out of your system now. <laughs> no, I think I think I'm I'm. You're Just give us done. a tiny bit of leeway here, Harley. Are you come, done? Come on, come on. We're only doing a little. We're only doing a few little goofs. We're like halfway into this thing. It is about halfway here. <laughs> Anyway, uh, Belle meets the rest of the denizens of the castle. The servants, the enchanted creatures, you can call them now. Uh, the souls attached to living furniture. Basically, it's a castle full of poltergeists. Exactly, they're poltergeists. Uh, so, uh, That's you know, what the new paranormal activity could be. Well, a Beauty and the Beast mind. crossover. <laughs> Absolutely. Paranormal activity x Beauty and the Beast. So, they have this whole interaction where they're talking about, oh, maybe this could break the spell and whatnot. Um, basically playing matchmaker. Ba- basically playing matchmaker. And, you know, Beast has given this idea of, we're going to be having dinner, you're eating dinner with me, come here now. Uh, she's like, no. She doesn't. Beast is just sitting there waiting. He gets pissed off. But, like, uh, the implication of this is that they've sort of, up until this point, they've resigned themselves to just being stuck under the curse forever. Like, it doesn't appear that they have ever tried to 
set beast up with someone, you know. They can't leave the castle. Who are they going to set him well, up Well, they, they, the they, they never really... They can Chip leave the castle. the castle. Oh, that's right. Chip Beauty and the, the Beast. Um, the Beast leaves the castle. Uh, in the, the Enchanted Christmas, a couple of characters leave the castle. But, um, you know, it's just like... They haven't really done anything proactive to try and, you know, set the Beast up. Well, in respect, they're the rich. It's not. Yeah, it's not it's... like they're gonna make, be able to make a Bumble account for him. Yeah, they're not gonna but be able to down... get him on Twitter. Yeah, on get, Tinder. Yeah, get the beast on Tinder. Or Grinder. Hey, but you never you know. know. He is a bear. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just a bunch of South su- South Francisco and hipsters just start going to the castle, and they're like, oh. Oh, where's the juice bar? You don't go on Tinder for true love, though. <laughs> but it's like, like it does sort of raise the question of what is the beast? Like, what has he been turned into here? Because he seems to kind of have the body structure of something like a lion with the head of, like, a very large dog crossed with a bear or something, and then ram's horns. Yeah. Well, in, in the original story, he's sort of snake-like. This is the oh, way they can make him more... Yeah, it is so creepy Uh, in the original. So, this practice dinner does not go. No. Uh, It doesn't take. Beast, like, slams on the door. He's like, if you don't eat with me, you don't eat at all. Uh, Young lady, come out of there this instance. You were going to join us, and we're going to eat dinner together like a real family. (laughs) We're Uh, going to eat dinner out of our family and off of our family. Come to dinner. And, and oh. he's not my real dad. <laughs> it's like Beast is just standing at the bottom of the stairs, pointing up at Cogsworth. You're not my real dad. And but like that's he said, she's being so difficult. And, and this closet, I guess, this closet is trying to calm Belle down because obviously she's traumatized at this point. Uh, and she's like, yeah, g- please give him a chance. He, he's really quite nice when you get to know him. He's been a prick up to this point. Well, this is the thing about the Beast in this version, is that he is much more aggressive than the 2017 version. That's the child. interesting thing. I hadn't seen the 1991 version for a long, long time when I saw the 2017 version. In the 2017 version, I was kind of like... Oh, yeah, I kind of see where all this criticism of the Beast is coming from, but I don't quite get why, he's why everyone's so up in arms of it. He's more of a solitary Batman figure. Exactly. Yeah, he's sort they, of like they, a sad loner. They softened him quite a bit in the 2017 one. They made him much more of a gentleman. Whereas in this 1991 version, he is aggressive, bordering on the violent. There are he... multiple scenes in this where he, like, yells and rages at Belle, tears furniture into pieces while she cowers in the corner of the room. It's a very, you know, sort of, you know... He's having tantrums. Yeah. Because he never grew up as a normal person. He spent all this time from 11 to 21 as a monster. So, with, with only Cogsworth as, like, a parental figure, he can't tell anyone to do anything <laughs> he has but he like he went through puberty clout. as a beast yes, he went through puberty as a beast good. he's like humping the furniture or something <laughs> but, look, that's not gonna the, go well for the, the, whoever got turned has, into the lounge uh, chair 
Cogsworth has an animated bloody spray bottle. Get off. (laughs) Get off. We need season Milan oh, here. He's God. shedding. It's like, it's like, it's like. What, what, what do we do with the beast? He shit on the furniture. Those are people. Uh, so he shit on Terry. Terry doesn't deserve this. So that's why we don't have the toilet. Uh, beasts don't use toilets. So he shits out in the woods like an and animal. And then Belle, you know, leaves her room. Because she's hungry, uh, understandably. Then we have the Be Our Guest sequence. Yes. Which is one of the largest musical numbers in the piece. And the first time we actually see some of the CG animated, you know, marriage of the hand-drawn and the computer-generated animation. Do you have anything to say about this sequence? Not really. I know that it gets a lot of praise but it's not my favourite song in the movie. I think I prefer... My favourite song in the movie is probably Beauty and the Beast. Absolutely. But I, I like Gaston and I like Belle before I like uh, yeah. Be Our Guest. Um, the cool thing about this sequence is we get more of an idea of how the furniture and the all that stuff operates. There were heaps of servants in this castle. Like some of them are spoons, some of them them are plates. There's there's, there's the really angry chef who's yes. basically a stove at this point, and he's like, "I slaved all night for this, and no one's grateful. No one's grateful. I cooked on myself." Yeah, that but hurts. like imagine being the spoon, and then just the beast comes and like sucks on your head every night while he eats dinner. It's yeah, no, I, he doesn't use spoons. Sucks on your head help. if you're lucky. Yeah. That's your I hand. can't help but consider the logistics of the lives of these living furniture pieces. I can't Cogsworth help but consider the, the nature of it. Cogsworth and Lumiere were lucky. Imagine being a feather duster. Yeah, Plumet. Yeah. Who um, has way more character in the remake. Yes, which is a good thing. Um, in, in this version, she's just kind of there for Lumiere to... Mac on. Mac on, be his... To do it to his whole debonair French person. Oh, he's he's kind of Pepe Le Pew in this, isn't he? Yeah, yes, he's very yeah. Pepe. He, he's a good game. Just let me... You didn't get this because it was the song that was deleted. Let me just find the lyrics there. But he introduces... He has the start of the song. It has a kind of lecherous quality to the, the things that he's going to do when he's human again. <laughs> okay. But it's sort like, of a leisure suit Larry-esque. Sex romp through France. This is um, explicit. I'll be Lumiere. I'll be we, cooking we've said again. Shits, yeah, this is explicit. Time. It's already oh, explicit. Damn it! I thought we get one without it, but no. People aren't listening. Children aren't listening to a three-hour podcast on Beauty and the Beast. I know. <laughs> but Lumi- Lumiere, I'll be cooking again. Be good looking again with a Mademoiselle on each arm. When I'm human again, only human again, poised and polished and gleaming with charm, I'll be courting again, she can sporting again, Mrs. Potts butts in, which should cause several husbands alarm. <laughs> she she knows him. She knows yeah. him. She knows him well. But uh, like, and then in the director video sequel, like he's he's uh, cuddling up with this the feather duster, but then he starts trying to. Uh, get with the Christmas decorations. Damn like it, he's Come jumping on. around. 
to all sorts of women in in this uh this franchise lumiere's a a player yeah um so then cogsworth and bell didn't eat anything by the way oh yeah throughout this entire sequence she has one taste of the gray stuff this nondescript gray stuff which could be caviar could not be we don't know where did this was where does their produce come from they don't really have it's a ghost haunting thing. There is yeah. no actual food. There's no food. She doesn't eat a single thing. She just watches a show and Cogsworth's like, well, off to bed. And she's like, but I didn't... Off to bed, young lady. Uh, so they show her around a bit. Uh, Cogsworth goes on his whole... Oh, it's all Baroque and not Baroque and all if that it's, sort if of it's, thing. If it's not Baroque, don't fix it. Uh, and then... You know, she goes, hey, what's up there? They go, that's the worst way you're not meant to go up in there. It's 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 the master's dead wives. <laughs> um, <laughs> like some kind of blue beard weird thing. So, Belle ends up going into there. Into the West Wing, which was pretty much the, the beast one, one role. The rest of the house is yours, but that. Um, so, she sees all the gnarly shit in there. Sees the mirror, sees the rose. Then Beast is like, "What are you doing in here? You that's get the... out of my room!" <laughs> it's like this was the one thing, the one place you weren't meant to go. Dad, she keeps going into my room. Touching she touches my, my stuff. stuff. She touched my enchanted rose, Dad. Uh, so yeah, then she, you know he has a fit about it. Uh. A tantrum for good reason. You don't want to knock. This that is one road. of his. This is one of his violent tantrums where he's destroying furniture and throwing things. He's probably killed quite a number of his staff over the years. Every time he like again. gets gets a hangnail or something, he starts tearing them into pieces. He kicks his. He he he's walking around sullenly. Kicks the side of a table. Loses his shit. Uh. So. You just see a table flying out of the castle. So Belle's like, screw this shit, I'm out. And starts bolting, hops on Philippe. Philippe's like, where the hell have you been? <laughs> they... like, I've been here for like a day and a half. Like, what? what's in there even? The Philippe's just stop, starts booking it. Then they start getting attacked by wolves. These really gnarly wolves too. Yeah, at the beginning I was like, ah, oh, don't worry, it's Balto. Gets further into... You just see the red eyes. That's not Balto. So yeah, then the beast comes in, starts beating up the wolves. Uh, As you do, because he's a monster, but he's not going to let someone die. So he, you know, saves her, gets injured in the process. Then... And as I said earlier on, this is where in the extended edition, they add blood into his wounds. Mm, And... Like, later on, like, multiple people get stabbed in this movie. How is this rated G? Wait, so they add blood to the final sort of Bastille-esque siege. I can't remember if they do in that bit, but they absolutely do with the wolves. Wow. Cool. So... But even, like, it doesn't matter the context, but... I mean, if you're watching, like, a Wiggles movie or something, and then they just up and stab Dorothy the Dinosaur, that should be at least an automatic PG. Like, yeah, the it, entrance it's... of a blade into someone else's body should 
disqualified G-rating immediately. Yep, so uh, then uh, Bell grabs a beast wound, pulls all the antiseptic onto yeah, it, you know, yeah, like yeah. alcohol and whatnot. All the good stuff. Uh, beast is whinging, he winces in pain. Like a uh, little baby. Bell's like, sit still, shut up, I'm helping you. Uh, and he's like, I don't deserve your help. Then, uh, this is basically when he starts to soften. Yeah. Uh, then, uh, Well, she thanks him for saving her life. Which, that's, granted, that's the nice thing to And do. he's affected yeah. by yeah. this. Granted, he did save her life, and she thanks him. He's like, that's the nicest thing anyone said to me in a long time, sort of thing. Uh, anyone who wasn't a piece of furniture... Uh, they don't count as people. Classist undertones. They were the proletariat anyway. Uh, you come from nobility. I can smell it in your blood. Then Gaston's like, Gaston wants to commit Maurice to the asylum. So he brings this uh, fellow from the mental hospital to pick up Maurice. Then he's like, look, I need you to take Maurice off my hands. Then this Creepy Crypt Keeper fellow who looks haunted. He does. Uh, it's basically like, it's not medically sound, but why not? Sounds like fun. He, he's got the vibe of, not only will I, will I do this for you, I'll do it for free. I'll do it just because I enjoy it. He's that kind of creepy. This is the voice actor of Frollo in Hunchback Makes of Notre sense. Dame. It, 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 it bleeds through. Makes sense. I think they might be related. Apparently, apparently, when he the the audio for him in this in Beauty and the Beast is actually his audition. They were recording him when he came into audition. And they were just like, "Yeah, that's great. We choose you, and don't even bother doing it again. Here's some money. We'll use that." Cool. And that's actually what got him. Um, like they they knew him for when they came time to to cast. That's nice. great. That's. That's awesome. That makes perfect sense. Uh, he's so, got this creepy kind of way of speaking. It's just awesome. So then Beast shows Belle the library. And he's pretty much like, pretty much all these books are yours now. And I don't know why the library doesn't look as gnarly as the rest of the castle. I'm just wondering, are the books alive? Hey, Belle! Don't open some of them me! Seem to be? Read my contents, Belle! <laughs> But then, like, what happens if you, like, tear a page out? They scream. I'm just, I'm just trying to figure out, but when they turn back into humans, are they, like, missing something? But when they turn back into humans, are they missing parts of themselves? I mean, I, I just get hung up on the logistics of all of this. Chip has a bit of his skull missing. Uh, so for this next sequence, it's the something that wasn't there before song. Uh, If that's the title, I'm not entirely certain, but it's that sequence. Where they start to get to know each other better, start to hang out, start to feel their feelings. And this is apparently also the sequence in which holds Christmas Adventure, yeah. or whatever it's called. The Enchanted Christmas. Uh, it's a nice song. What do you guys reckon of it? It's pleasant it's nice. enough. Yeah. It is. It, it, was, it, was li- it was a replacement for Human Again. They cut Human Again out because it didn't work and they um, at the time, and then they replaced it with, with this. They had to write in a new song to replace it. Yeah, and there's this part in, in the song where everyone's saying, there's something there that wasn't there before. 
And and Chip's like, what? And they're like, there's something there that wasn't there before. And he's like, what? He's like, that doesn't help me, old man. You just repeated the same thing. What's there that wasn't there before? And, you know, he's asking and he's like, well, I don't, I don't get it. Uh, how, what's the deal? This is another sequence that was quite nice in the, uh, 2017. Yeah. Film. Uh, and then we get, you know, Lumiere and Cogsworth are helping Beast get ready for the ball. And and they've got this, I think it's the same it's coat, a coat rack. rack. This the same coat rack, probably from earlier in the movie, where he's like... Okay, Prince Adam, I'm just going to take a little bit off the top. Just a little bit off the top. I'm going to make you my masterpiece. And think about it. I don't understand the logistics of what items they turn into. Because by all logic, if he's a barber, he should have been turned into a pair of scissors, not a coat rack. But, like, are are they necessarily turning into things that are indicative of their... Their place well, in life. Mrs. Potts was turned into, you know, a teapot because she's the maid. Yeah. She's the maid. She was working but then at the same. The chef son. turns into the yeah. to the. Her son was probably helping out in the kitchen. But it's like it's almost like it's more connected to their names than it is to their place in the castle, like Cogsworth, Lumiere, Illumination. Which is horrific if it's going to be someone you know called Smith or whatever. They just turn into an anvil. <laughs> And and what? and they're stuck somewhere in the castle. Like, hey, um, anyone? Someone use me? I'm so alone. And then you've got it. Well, in in the remake, you've got Mr. Cadenza, who's Stanley Tucci's character, and the he piano. turns into the piano or harpsichord. No, it's a harpsichord. And yes, it it does seem connected to their, you know, names. But you can also see that... Like, Chip is has a chip I'll, in his, in I choose his to porcelain when he's turned into a cup. Missing. But he he has no injuries no, when no he's injuries that you can a see human boy at the end. Yes, he may have been dropped at some point. Yes. When he was a cop. When he was a, when he was a when cop. He was a cop. Uh, we have to specify that. Because Beast's not tremendously delicate. The Beast the beast had one of his fits and <laughs> no, threw he, him at a wall he or got something. A, he got a flucky. <laughs> they Turns glued out, him back together. He had like 50 other brothers. <laughs> uh, that's all yeah. the kids. Um, Mrs. Potts. Or maybe it was, was Chip's consciousness player. spread out across them. That's absolutely horrific. That's why he can't use cutlery or anything that's why he just has to suck his food out of a bowl because he keeps and, and the bowl is the like uh, master can you stop eat, eat out of a trough like an animal well the bowls the bowls don't seem to the be uh are. be humans the, the, the plates are but they don't the have faces are. no which is hey that's a horrific thing i have no mouth and i must scream yeah that's a i have no mouth and i must scream kind of scenario it's like, like um Mrs. Potts has a face, Lumiere has a face, Cogsworth has a face, Plumette, for some reason, has a face, but all of these unknown the, like, all of with these... the spoons and stuff, they don't have faces. They can't speak. But when you have someone like Mrs. Potts, or the pot that pots that are used for cooking, or bowls that have hot soup put in, you've got, like, boiling water mm. contained inside of you. And it's clear that they can feel pain, because Lumiere keeps... Exactly, setting Cogsworth exactly. on fire <laughs> throughout the film. killing him on multiple occasions. 
I'm just saying, I'm I, I'm just saying that this children's film may not have the logical no. consistency. Well, yeah, it it doesn't that I really. look for. Uh, so yeah, after all of that, Beast get ready, gets ready. Now we have the iconic and uh, scene from the yeah. film, and I just want to the talk song, about this for a second. Beauty and the Beast. That now this song, I think, just in in my opinion, is the perfect love song. It encapsulates, I feel, everything about sort of that fairy tale kind of romance and no one can sing it like angela lansbury she apparently did in one take it shows just crushing it emma thompson did a fine job but angela lansbury gives the song such a mythic just quality to it it's a gorgeous song one of my favorite songs. Then they of have time. that butchered R and B version at the end. Radio over the end Disney. Credits. Can I Celine say something Dion. about Radio Disney? <sighs> it's trash, but it's, it's oh not, my god! Look, it's it ain't as bad as the version they did for the 2017. Uh, one. Ariana Grande does fine, thank you very much. She's better than Peebo Bryson. I just don't like the whole vibe they had for that. She can uh, sing four th- okay. octaves. Give her a break. The new version they did for the film was good. The one on part of the album, not so much. Um, but this is an iconic scene. It's that melding of uh, hand-drawn and computer-generated for the ballroom. One of the first examples of that sort of thing, apart from that earlier... Also, by the way, this scene is the last scene of Enchanted Christmas. And you guys don't know this, having not seen Enchanted Christmas, but there is a large Christmas tree just out of you. There is? Because... Because they've all been celebrating Christmas. They do multiple sweeping shots, and I have to call bullshit. But Lawson, (laughs) we see the whole room. We see the whole room. Well, I don't know what to tell you. Are you you saying I was wrong? Is this the Mandela effect? I'm just saying that maybe perhaps the people who made Beauty and the Beast the Enchanted Christmas were not overly focused on maintaining the continuity of the original film. I think that is an unwarranted accusation on your behalf, Lawson Keeney. Possibly possibly a scandal that will rock Disney to its foundation. <laughs> that they maybe weren't terribly focused on a spin-off movie about Christmas. The, the shock. I'm just going to quickly horror, say that the shame. It's treason, then. It's treason, then. So uh, then, a uh, fantastic scene occurs, and then because uh, Belle's, you know, still sad she can't see her father. The beast's like, maybe there is a way. Then he takes her to the West Wing, shows her the magic mirror, sees the bullshit happening with Maurice. Um, no, he's trying to get to the castle. Yeah, the bullshit happening with yeah. Maurice. Because he's like, no one's going to help me. I'm just going to go. And he doesn't have a Philippe to take him there. And noise the spider carriage willing to help. Yeah, this apparently. homie is going on foot. <laughs> um, I, be- I bet spider carriage is just, just out of frame climbing on the trees. And... No, no, spider <laughs> carriage. Okay. And, okay, so this scene brings up that small plot hole that I was... Uh, going to bring up earlier. So, 
the beast says you go be with your father but you can never come back and i'm like they know where the castle is she could always go get her father and come back philippe knows where the castle is maurice certainly knows where the castle is and you know who has the best idea of where the castle is spider carriage he, he's gone to and from the town multiple times so he would definitely know where it is unless he's out in the forest like the car in chamber of secrets that's my head Gannon. just fighting off packs of wolves yes that's where spider carriage was the whole time and 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 our image of spider carriage taking Maurice back to the town is they get to the border he just dumps him out and then just runs back into the enchanted forest howling as he does howling as he does like rearing on his back and howling at the full moon he's the most monstrous uh, cursed item oh definitely like that's not a person Uh, that's a horse in this film not in the enchanted Christmas that would be Tim Tim Curry uh so Belle's like, oh, he's in danger. I gotta go to him. Beast is like, yeah. Then you have to go. Then it's the first selfless thing, really. Yeah. That he's done. Yeah. Then Lumiere and Coltsworth are like, oh, that went swimmingly, didn't it? It's like they 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 didn't they haven't gotten the memo yet, and they're like, well, master, um, Good well done. Good show. We're gonna leave you to uh, where's, where's the girl? girl? Then he's like, where's the girl, go. Adam? I'd let her go. You what? <laughs> then Coxworth, but why would you do that? Then he's like, because I love her. And, and then like, Coxworth... Excellent line, mate. Yeah. It's a fantastic line, mate. Yeah, and then it he cuts was surprised to her... he said that as well. Yeah, and then it cuts to her, you know, taking him back to... Taking her father back to their house. And... And then uh, we have... One of my favorite songs in the film, the mob song. They gave Gaston well, but, well, two we see, villain songs. Well, yes, but we see, to prove that her father's not insane, she shows, with the mirror, she shows the townspeople to beat. She, so, she shows them a far more horrifying reality uh, So of enchantresses like, and haunted castles. Gaston's like, Madge be damned, I'm going hunting. I'm killing that thing. It's going on my wall. It's like, my theory is like, it's got antlers. <laughs> Daddy well, needed a new thing to put on the wall. Hell yes, my bathroom needs something. It's like, now, I do use antlers in all of my decorating. The true oh. hunt begins. The hunt for a wife, that was the appetizer. <sighs> killing a beast, that's the main course. So, they have this fantastic musical number, the mob song. It's basically Gaston's whipping up the town's terror, saying, you know, s- stuff that the Beast would couldn't have possibly ever done. Basically, being a physical manifestation of the Daily Stormer. Yeah, he's basically uh, doing a whole bunch of propaganda against the Beast. What I would love to see someone just take the mob song and plaster Fox News's logo right on his face. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, it's a fantastic song. One of the lines that really sticks out to me is the Here we come all 50 strong and 50 Frenchmen can't be wrong. Hey, that, that, that's, the, that's the punchline 
to the entire satire that is that song. Mm. It get yeah. it gets me every time because it's like they so very much can. <laughs> it's like fifty Frenchmen can't be wrong. A A, we're here for the aristocracy. Am I right? Uh, so yeah, it's the all the peasantry, uh, and basically the uh, uh, Desert of Castle see the crowd coming because it's not that far away from the town, honestly. No. Um. So Coxworks basically basically like, oh shit, it's the peasantry. They've come for our heads. Battle stations, everyone. Let's teach these peasants a thing or two. Well, they set up this this trap, basically. They set up this ambush. Yes. And I sent you that picture of the mean mug and jewelry box. <laughs> it's got this weird, creepy smile, and it's like, Heh, I'm going to bite someone. Like, he, he's sitting right next to Lumi, yeah, just going, Oh, I can't wait. I've been waiting for this for ten years. <laughs> just but it's like, excitement. when they get into this fight... I want to know where the knives are at. Oh. Because we know there are a whole bunch of knives. They open the drawers and start flying at people. They start levitating like something out of a horror movie, and it's like, you, 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 we're going to have you. The most most terrifying piece of equipment in this siege is the chef. Oh. The stove, he looks like (laughs) something out of the haunted... Mansion or Monster he, House or Castlevania. He goes after these people, spewing fire like a hell beast. <laughs> He's a like monster. something coming from the pits of Tartarus. He goes screaming at these um, people. So they start attacking everyone. It's like a haunted house in here. Most of the crowd, they've booked it. They're gone. So we've got like 50 Frenchmen... Mm, Down to like, 25. You've got 25 Frenchmen <laughs> who are really there for Gaston. The other bunch were like, actually, you know what? We're going to live up to the stereotype. We're cowards. We're out. Uh, uh, white flag. Bye. Uh, okay, so in the 2017... And, they, and as they're running, they invent parkour. Yeah. In the, twen- <laughs> in the 2017 version, a sequence happens very much the same way. The uh, cupboard uh, eats a man... Yes. Uh, spits them out dressed in French ladies' garb. In this one, he freaks out bolts. In the newer one, he's like, No, I actually own this look. Uh, which was really nice to see. Someone who's like, I've actually got what I wanted. However, I both reactions? Both reactions are warranted. warranted. Warranted, because um, this closet ate his clothes. So, not, is... not doing a lick of damage to him. And there's, there's this giant chest. It eats a it guy. It eats a guy and licks its lips. It actually It has it. a tongue, Lawson. This chest has a tongue. It's a mimic. It's a mimic from D&D, Lawson. Now, this is an enchanted castle in more ways than one. He actually... One of these pieces of furniture actually killed a guy. Killed an ate a guy. Killed an ate a guy. Anyway... So, and then Gaston's like, Beast is mine. So he goes after the Beast with his bow and arrow, sees him up in the West Wing. Beast is like, eh, I'm not feeling it. Gaston... F- <laughs> I'm not in the mood. <laughs> I ain't in the mood for this. Fires the arrow at his shoulder, hits Beast. Beast is like, I've had worse. 
My heart's broken. He's like pulling like an Obi-Wan Kenobi kind of thing. Yeah. He's just taking the shots. Uh, and then Gaston's like... It's like that episode of The Simpsons where Homer becomes a boxer and he just gets punched over yes. and over and over again until his opponent gets tired. Uh, and Beast is basically like, eh, I don't care. He's like, I um, kind of deserve this anyway. I've then been Then Gaston's shit. like, fight? Like, I'm not going to get anything out of this if you don't fight back. <laughs> But it's Bell's arrival that really prompts yes. him to sort of take an yeah. active part. Yes. And, and yeah. And Gaston Beast is... pulls a straight up Batman. Yeah, Gaston hides is... in the shadows. And... Yeah, and Gaston is like, Cause... if you don't fight back, I don't have any fun. Don't be selfish. Give one of us what we want. <laughs> sort of thing. You've got um, to imagine that What's going through the Beast's mind is probably that Belle sent them all there. Yeah. Yes, yes. I mean, that's the logical conclusion. She leaves the castle and they turn up, what, an hour and a half later yeah. with pitchforks and and torches. And, and, and all this time, intercut with this scene, you've got Chip. He's somehow stowed away with Belle and saves them from being, being locked, locked in, in the, the basement. With Maurice's machine. By starting the Maurice's machine. Which, Which is up on a hill somewhere, for some reason. It's it's just sitting there. And in my mind, the way I would have that scene go is he starts the machine, it runs into the house, no one comes to save the beast. Because <laughs> it explodes, <laughs> they're both gone. Like Chip is a million pieces, apparently all with sentience, who would have thought. And... No one saves the beast. He dies a horrific death. Gaston gets the castle. And this is why John doesn't make movies. <laughs> so we, so Chip saves them from in there. They book it to the castle. In Bell's half like, the time. In half the time, too. Bell's like, Beast! Beast's like, Bell? Then he, like, grabs the thing Gaston's swinging at him, chucks him around a bit, beats the hell from him. So at this point... Beast has Gaston by her throat, holding him over a ledge. Then, uh, you know, Gaston's feigning being afraid and all of that. Uh, Beast puts him down, starts climbing up to Bell. Then Gaston jabs him, stabs him right... Stabs him? Yeah, yeah. right in the side. Beast... Sort of... I'm just saying, there's an inordinate amount of stabbing for a children's film. Yeah. yeah, even coming from some of the, you know, household objects. Like, there's a comb that looks super sharp that just digs itself into someone. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, and then Gaston slips and falls. Because the beast is sort of whirled around and, you know, is screaming in pain. Then Gaston falls to his death. The classic Disney thing of falling into a void and not coming back. Well, because it gives it gives it gives the character a sort of agency in the death of the villain, mm. but at the same time, it's not a violent agency. Do you know what I yeah. mean? It's not like he's stabbing him or shooting him or something. He's just sort of causing he's causing the death, yes, but it's a bloodless death that. Is not, as far as causing the deaths of others go, it's not a particularly aggressive And action. it's on the villain as well. Yes. Yeah, it's not something that you, you could... It's not like he picked him up and threw him. No. He, he's not completely culpable. It's no. like the whole Frollo thing. 
Frollo he, did it to himself. He did it to himself, in a way. Yeah. But, like, most Disney villains go out this way, because it's a good way to give the protagonist agency in the villain's end without having it be gory. Yeah. You know, you said Frollo, there's Scar, although admittedly Scar gets eaten after he lands. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, I don't know what happens to Right him. back to, to Snow White, it's all... It's the, it's that process happens in, in quite a lot of Disney films. And uh, then, uh, you know, Beast is dying because he got stabbed in probably a vital spot, which Gaston would know since he hunts. Yeah. And Beast is this amalgamation of a lot of different animals. I think he was just stabbing wildly. No, but he got him good. He got him good. Uh, so Beast is starting to die. The last petal on the rose is starting to fall. And then Beast is like, I'm glad I get to see you one last time. Proceeds to... <laughs> what was that, Lawson? That's it all. Yeah. Uh, Beast starts to die. Uh, then Bell's like, but I love you. And then Prince... Then the Beast turns back into the Prince in a really cool moment. Uh, where I swear they used actual smoke. As part of his transformation. Like, hmm. real, actual smoke. Yeah, now, he's turned back into his human form. Admittedly, he's much cooler as the Beast. Yeah. He just looks like Fabio. Well, it's just a... Yeah. <laughs> it's just that we've been seeing him in the Beast form for the whole movie. He is our protagonist. So that when he becomes Fabio, it... Doesn't it can't look right to us no. because we don't know him as Fabio. Exactly. He's kind of got a weird pouty look on his face. And then uh, everyone starts to turn back. Mrs. Potts, Lumiere, Cogsworth. The castle even starts transforming back into what it was before. It's got like sort of gargoyles, it's cherubs. Cherubs and it's all this like sunny No, I want to live in Castlevania. Come on. Goggles all the way. Uh, so everyone starts transforming back. And then we have the final scene, which is the reprise for Beauty and the Beast. Yes. And it's this sort of dance for their wedding. But the thing of it is, is that we never really get any conclusion to what the angry mob feels. Because presumably they'd have some questions. Hmm. Uh, History answered that question, Lawson. But even, like, it doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense in terms of... The fact that there is a castle so nearby that apparently, what, ten years earlier, everyone in it just turned to furniture and no one thought to go and check on what happened to those guys? Well, they do raise that in the 2017 live-action version, in which it was part of the enchantment that everyone forgets about the people there, forgets about the castle and all of that. And when everyone starts turning back... That scene's a lot longer, in which uh, the townspeople yeah, who yeah. knew the people there remembered them, and they, they you know, reunited. Yes. But in this, version, it's, in this version, it's a little bit muddled yeah. in that respect. It's like they wanted to get the end a bit faster. They couldn't answer all the questions raised, so they were like, let's just end it. Sort of thing. Well, just because any question you answer about 
uh, the logistics of this enchantment pro- tends to highlight all of the other questions yeah. about the logistics just, of the enchantment. This raises more and more questions. Yeah. We've spent a lot of time on this, the, 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 the general process of how this all well, works. Well, there were questions. The film doesn't do a very good... Yes. Uh, so, the film doesn't do a great job of explaining and this. And it's, it's this scene that I think the remake really does better because you get this gorgeous, gorgeous reprise in the 2017 version of Beauty and the Beast where it has these yeah. just... just very beautiful lyrics and talking about, you know, the seasons changing and, you know, the fact that this is a story that's been told for years and years and will continue to be told for years and years. And I think in that essence, the 2017 version, in my opinion, feels a lot better, even though it does have some more It answers more questions. It does. They they leave less to the theorizing. I do and all of that. I do like the uh, the twenty seventeen version better than this one. I must admit, it just there's a little bit of, and it's not really the film's fault, but every movie since then has sort of copied it, and so it feels a little bit old hat, basic by comparison. It's the formula has been evolved so much, and it's just sort of a bit wrote an archaic just from someone you know in our age bracket who has grown up on all the movies of that have come since and all of the movies that have either satirized it or you know subverted it and all that but it's a it's a gorgeous film we haven't really talked about how oh, beautifully it animated it is aesthetically the backgrounds are fantastic it's so colorful which is something that jumped out to me when the movie the started. Because the, the movie starts with all this, these colourful flowers and stuff. I'm like, that's not how the 2017 one starts. The 2017 one starts with a storm and a creepy party with creepy people in a creepy-looking castle. So it's that whole... Some of the um, some of the character animations is the only part where it's a little bit sloppy. Specifically Belle. She's apparently notorious in some animating fan circles that she goes what's called off-model quite a lot, um, where you have the model of the character, this is what the character looks like, and that's what you've got to make your animation look like. Uh, she, Her face warps in odd ways at times, because apparently this was a very rushed production, especially towards the end. They aired it, they premiered it, in a work print version that was like 70% complete with the animation just two months before it premiered proper. Yikes. And how long were they working on it before then? Uh, a few years, but they ended up scrapping like a whole other iteration of it that was going to be a much more snobby and aristocratic kind of thing. There's On the, on the Blu-ray version of it, they include a sort of demo uh the first 15 minutes or so of what this version would have would have been and it would have included uh a wicked step a wicked aunt who came to live with bell and her father i believe there was also a sister of bell yeah and that's how it is in the original story yeah and it was much more uptight and sort of uh, it didn't have any of the personality or the charm and they pretty much just decided to throw the whole thing out and go with what they went with so that was like 
a good chunk of work that they just went and they, you know, they had to put stuff yeah. out. And it was a good call too. Yes. So anyways, that's us done with Beauty and the Beast. I, you're not going to be happy about this, Harley, but this hasn't been a very short podcast. Um, the Well, we're, we're going to have to work on that. Cause... I have to edit it, Harley. He was making a short joke. Oh, haha. Ha. Yes. <laughs> it's quite. Um, but uh, we're going to have to get better at that because next week... The movie that we'll be watching is JFK, which is 209 minutes long. Okay. So oh considering boy. that we have done 85 minutes on 85 minutes of footage, we're going to have to abridge that. Uh, I'll be very interested to see what you think of this movie. It's on Amazon Prime in Australia. Right. So that'll be the one that we're reporting back with next week. 1991's Oliver Stone movie, JFK. All right. So... This has been, I don't know why we're doing this. Music. The music for the start and Every closing. week, every week I have to say something about it. The music for the opening and closing is, I don't know why we're doing this, by Project Wavelength. You'll be able to find it on YouTube at some point soon. At the beginning of next week. At the beginning of next week. And I've been Holly Lewis. I've been Lawson Keeney. And I have been, and will continue to be Jean Lewis, unless I get turned into some like a candelabra or something. But that'll technically still be me. So you know. What do you think you guys would be if you got turned into living furniture? God, isn't question. that a question? Uh, I don't know if there's anything called a Lewis. These are the imagine... kind of ex- existential wonderings that keep me up at night. <laughs> I imagine some sort of TV or computer. Because we're thinking modern day. I'd probably be a drum kit, honestly. I'd probably end up as one of the coat racks or something. <laughs> I feel like that'd be a pretty common. I feel like I'd be a bookcase or a couch, one of those two. Fair enough. Well, see ya. See ya, everyone. Yes, see you next week.